0: You know, every week and multiple days, multiple countries. But yeah, I, I echo your gratefulness, man.
1: David, Dave, you're very, very good at. I, I mean, last few months or two that I got to know you, you're so good at um, at genuinely just praising in the moment, and and uh, and it's genuine. I feel it, and and you just you know anybody on the stage that's just said something or done something. And it's a real intuition you've built. It's probably from that habit that you've got on, on, on that morning habit, because habits help. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to point that out, Dave. You do that, like, so instinctively. I'll second that, Cal. Yeah. I'll second that. And, if, and it feels know, really good. To... It, yeah, it, it never- it, it, It's never... amazing. Yeah, sorry. Yeah.
2: No, I was just gonna say one last thing, which was, um, uh, you know, one, one of the, and I know a whole bunch of us in this room have had it, but if there's a, if there's a time to bring it up, I should probably now. For those of us that have that have had the privilege to be out there and have seen, you know, the extremes of the world at both ends, it's uh, I and mean, this is truly, it's a tr- it's a time to be truly grateful, and I eternally am to have this space to be here with everyone. So, thank you for having uh, having me, and uh, it's a pleasure to have everyone and, and uh, much love. God bless.
3: All right, That's uh, it's a it's a great grateful fest today, and uh, as it should be every day. Um, uh, that's one of <clears throat> one of the um, hidden blessings of going through a pandemic is people start to reconnect with you know what's important and being the the, the sense of being grateful and, and that. So the there's a bunch and I I it, it all uh, stemmed uh, coming for those just joining because the room's far bigger than when there was ten of us. The I was feeling terribly sick yesterday, and uh, feeling very grateful that uh, I feel back to my normal self today. So we can do a, a regular high energy version of tech news around the world because the last two sessions were very special, um, low energy versions. While I was building antibodies, was Tyler, the Tyler,
1: just vaccine. for your own, uh, just yeah. for your own, like, and I'm sure people here will uh, input what you consider to be low energy is, is is relatively high energy for other people. Because even yesterday, I, I, I the, the evening, evening, uh, show, um, you know, at first you were like, Oh, it's going to be low energy. Help me out guys. But you, you know, whatever you did, you, I, I felt uh, I still felt a lot of energy. So I just want to say that the, the, the metrics and the, uh, are a different one. So it's like, uh, yeah. you know, don't worry about it. Like, yeah. you know, it's a completely different, uh, scale when you're talking about it, you know, um, and, and uh and and the energy is what i think drives uh engagement on on this platform and and uh and y- y- even yesterday you had it and you had it in a way that was different which is that you you had it in a way that <clears throat> other people um uh, who really really admire you on the stage and 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 respect you uh wanted to really help you and and but but they they and they did it in their own way. I I, I know. I, I just know that. I know people sent you headlines. I know people behind yeah. the scenes were DMing me saying, how do I help uh, Tyler? And yeah. I said, like, this is fine. <laughs> it's all cool. You know, so well, that's what you've done. Thanks. That's your your energy you've created on this platform. We'll just ride through any ups and downs. So just don't worry about it, man. Yeah, yeah.
3: I, we've got a nice little robust anti-fragile system due to the strength of everyone here. And um, so many smart people in one room. We can overcome a lot of uh, difficulties so the uh on that point club one of the first it's not even an official headline yet although it is it is, let me let me actually see where it is in the actual list of the biggest headlines of the day the clubhouse back channel is obviously top of everybody's mind and it's uh in terms of ranking it in the big news it actually isn't in the top 10 of the big t- ah no it is what number is that Nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. It's the twelfth biggest story in tech at the moment is the Clubhouse debuts back channel, a DM feature supporting group messages and audio chat. And audio chat? I didn't know you could do audio with the back channel. On iOS and Android, the ability to send images or video will be added later. <clears throat> Can we send links like tweets or links to web pages? I haven't tried that yet. That,
2: yes. I, yes, you can. you can. You can send that in profile pictures and rooms.
3: Yeah. And I'm links. Sure, yeah. I'm sure you can send links, but will the, does the link make a little card so you can see an image of the link? I wonder. Anyway. So, um, however, because I'm not using the Clubhouse native app, I use Club Deck, as you know. Uh, and Club Deck doesn't yet have the back channel, although I just spoke to Pierre, the one of the two big brains behind Club Deck, and he assures me that they very soon will add Clubhouse back channel to Club Deck. So I'll be able to do Club Deck with you. But if you're sending me Club Deck, I'm sorry, Clubhouse back channel messages, I'm not able to see them because to use Club Deck, you must log out of Clubhouse. You can't be logged into both apps simultaneously. So um, just a quick message to all the people who might be sending <laughs> sending me back channels on Clubhouse uh, I'm not logged into Clubhouse. I can't be logged into Clubhouse uh, and use Club deck simultaneously so that's the twelfth biggest story in tech and let's run through the top ten biggest tech stories in tech real quick from the top number one Netflix says it has hired mike verdu facebook's v p of a and r and v r content that's wow. How did they do that, and why did they do that? Well, they say they did it because they want Mike to lead uh, Netflix's expansion into video games, which we've covered previously. That it's now very obvious they are going big into video games based on the 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 the, the, the new roles that they were hiring for, and Facebook's VP of A and R and VR. That's a huge role at Facebook because that's one of Facebook's biggest priorities at the moment is their AR and VR. So getting Facebook's VP of AR and VR to leave, to go over, go over somewhere else, <clears throat> that must have been some juicy stock options they threw his way. Some golden handcuffs, we call them. because um, that's, that's pretty big. So anyway, um, Netflix. I promise to run
1: India in the future.
3: Yeah, <laughs> uh, maybe
1: not. Yeah, that's ransom money. Yeah, that's, that, <laughs> sorry, sorry. That,
2: that, that's that, ransom that's,
3: money. That that takes some good. Um, that's that's quite a bit. Throw have to throw quite a bit of scratch sorry, at somebody.
2: That, that might have been offensive to someone. so I apologize.
3: I, I didn't hear it. If it was, I didn't. It, it was automatically algorithmically uh, right, removed from you. the audio feed. They'll, they'll, they'll yeah, I've got I've okay. got that brand new futuristic beta version where anything offensive is automatically removed. It's it's quite genius. So um, um Tyler, just yes. a
4: quick one on that. Just since yeah. speaking. And just yeah, actually you probably know Andrew Bose is the the VP of VR. Yes, Bosworth, I mean, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. he's in Bose org, mm-hmm. but he's one of the VP for the um reality lab. So yes. I just wanted so to clarify
3: that. Boz, as he's known, is really the the Captain of the Ship, when it comes to all things oculus with Facebook, so it's not like they are now rudderless in the v r a r department and there's it would be uh Boz is not going anywhere he's uh incredibly deeply integrated into facebook so i i don't want to thank for the correction michelle i don't want to give the impr- i didn't mean to give the impression that Facebook is somehow not uh um, oh, no, I know. You. I just wanted to clarify
4: for those who may have thought about those leaving
3: um, yeah. Facebook. By the way, we have special... Uh, some, <laughs> Michelle, am I able to share what you shared with me in the DMs?
4: Yeah, yeah. It. I don't think it's widely in the news yet. But it's, it's not, it's not right in
3: now. the news yet. This is like breaking news. And if it was in the news, it would be t- very high up in the news. And so uh, let's go ahead and break the news here. So fantastic that... Uh, We've got some breaking news for everybody here. So from, from my DMs to your ears, thanks from Michelle. I'm going to tweet this out right now so you can see it for yourself as I read it to you. This is big. This is huge. It's not even big. It's huge. It's bigger than big. It's huge. Here it is. Are you ready? as predicted by some bald, handsome-looking white dude for the past three weeks or or more, three months. Streamline, this is from Facebook.com's own um, website, which journalists will soon find as they wake up uh, around the U.S. and then start writing about endlessly. So you'll see this in the news headlines, oh, in a few hours from now. People, uh, the headline says, Streamline checkout on your Facebook site with Facebook pay. Facebook pay, the easiest way to pay on Facebook. And why would Facebook need Facebook pay? Well, because they're going to become e-commerce. It's going to become a replacement for Amazon for every mom and pop shop in the world. And as I've said many times, just as Facebook made it easy for you and every idiot you ever met to have a web page of their own, that's how simple it is. Three billion some people all were able to figure out how to make a Facebook page. That's how easy it is. That's a lot of idiots that figured out how to make a page. I mean, there are a lot of people who are not that bright, and yet they were able to figure out how to make a Facebook page. That is a testament to how easy it is to make a Facebook page. And that's basically everyone who has internet, by the way, because about half, you know, there's still about half the planet doesn't have regular internet, the half that does have Facebook pages. So anyone who has access to the internet has a Facebook page, basically. So and keep in keep in mind, there's a lot of unintelligent people in the world. Yet those individuals, the stupidest person you ever met has a Facebook page. Let that sink in for a second. And then think about the fact that there's a lot of businesses in the world who don't have Amazon shops. In fact, 99 percent of the businesses you've ever been to don't have Amazon shops. And now Facebook realized, ah, hang on a second. We've seen this before, because when Facebook was starting, 1% of people had their own websites. And because it was difficult to make a website on on type, uh, uh, what was the, all of those original blog uh, platforms. Um, I'm, the names escape me. Oh, like but,
5: WordPress or?
3: Yeah, just all of the early blogging platforms where you had to host your own blog on your own server. <laughs> You um, Like
6: Usenet or something like that?
3: No, a- after the Usenet era. It was like, um, Jesus call, Christ, it was not Typekit. What was it called? There was a few. WordPress. Word, well, yeah, but yeah, WordPress did allow you to do your own. That's true. You could use the the, the original WordPress version. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, so n- when that era was happening, people had these kind of semi-professional blogs because not everyone can figure out how to do it. And by the way, the same thing happened in e-commerce where you had to have Magenta if you wanted to have an online store. And Magenta was similar to WordPress, kind of complex, kind of difficult. You had to know a little coding, a little HTML. You needed to know how to use FTP to do file transfer protocols to move your files from your computer to, the, to wherever the server was, whether that be you know your own server or a cloud server. So there's quite a bit of friction and that removes 99% of people out of the equation. Right. That's where Facebook came in and said, no, no, no. We're going to make this um, stupidly simple for for everybody. And they did. And that's why the entire world, uh, the online world is on Facebook. And now they're going to do the same for e-commerce. And that's a lot of money, everybody. That's an incredible, incredible, inconceivable opportunity of getting every shop on the planet onto Facebook. Now, back to the headline that you're going to be seeing in 12 hours when all the American journalists wake up, which Facebook pay. And it says people already use Facebook pay to send money between each other on Facebook Messenger. And now uh, people already use Facebook pay to send money, shop, donate and more across Facebook apps and services. Now, for the first time, we're extending Facebook pay availability beyond our own platforms to businesses who want to provide a seamless checkout experience for their customers on their own websites. <clears throat> starting this August, people, businesses in the US who use participating platforms will have the ability to enable Facebook Pay as a payment option directly on their websites, giving their customers the ability to spend through checkout without having to re enter their payment information. We're starting the rollout with Shopify merchants. What a coincidence! And expect to expand availability with other platforms and payment service providers over time because, uh, and Facebook Pay is designed to help business drive conversion higher by giving customers a low friction, mobile friendly way to pay online. So it's the equivalent of Facebook check-in or when you sign up for a new app, Facebook has all of your login credentials and they make it really easy for you to log in with Facebook into a new app. Here, they've got all of your wallet information, all your payment information. And now you can, if that website also has e-commerce functions, they can allow you to pay with your Facebook, your already registered payment information as one of the button options. Now, of course, on their own site, the the kind of secret here, the, the strong implication is there And I just tweeted this out so you can see now what the Facebook pay button looks like on an e-commerce shop, including all the Shopify shops. And WordPress is obviously going to have their version of e-commerce to compete with Shopify. And everybody is going to have it. But Facebook itself, within Instagram, within... um WhatsApp within their own mother app is very soon going to you're going to start seeing all of these e-commerce stores of getting literally every shop you have ever been in all 100 percent of them, except for the one percent that are currently on Amazon and enjoying the good life on Amazon. That's fine. They're making a killing because they've digitized their business. They're using the benefits of data to attract customers that they otherwise wouldn't have it, have access to. And all this just it becomes an unfair advantage when you start being able to use data effectively in business. And now every mom and pop shop is going to have the same kind of things and the same effects that you had as an individual by joining Facebook and all the groups that you were able to connect with and all the new people you were able to connect with via Facebook and all the benefits that you had via Facebook. Every business is now going to have those same sort of network effects um, and probably more than you had as an individual using Facebook. So this Facebook pay is going to be one of the uh, important links in that chain of enabling this future of every business moving to digitized e-commerce, which will have very interesting impacts on brick and mortar shops. Because, think, think through this for a second, Somebody has done the analysis already and calculated that it depends on the business category, of course, hair cutters, hairdressers, hairstylists, of course, you'll still need to go to a hairstylist, right? That's not going to be removed. You can't do that through VR anytime soon in our lifetime. So um, nor will other other professions will be very hard to replace um, but a, the a good majority of them will be so. The ones that can be, will be, and so you're going to have a lot of businesses realizing that it's no. Once it 80% of their business moves to digitized e-commerce, which will happen, it no longer makes sense for them to maintain the brick-and-mortar shop on Main Street, uh, to which only makes up 20% of their business. So that business, if it does want to have a a geography associated with it, will move to the outside of town into a warehouse like facility where they can still do all the e-commerce and delivery and everything else. Because the delivery systems are going to get really fast, really quickly, and everything's going to be available on demand in in near real time. Um, And that's a massive transformation that's underway. Anyone trying to jump in there? Yeah, I'm I just curious question.
7: about the impact that will have on the future Correct. of cities. Right. So as I mean, basically the businesses, the the entities that give cities life, um, they move out, they they close
2: shop. I, I just wonder what kinds of organizations or entities will be there. To you know them? what?
3: I thank you for bringing that. That is a fantastic question. Who was that? Lakeisha. Who was that?
2: that was yeah, Lakeisha,
3: That was Lakeisha. That's the Lakeisha. So. Um, Lakeisha, that's exactly right, because radio, for example, this, by the way, was my emphasis of focus of study in college and university it was precisely this, how technologies impact cities and social development. So in the example of radio, for example, how did radio impact cities? I've men- I mentioned it three months ago. Anyone have a guess as how the technology of radio impacted cities? It's quite profound. It's quite interesting. It turns out that the size of the cities that we live in today is still directly impacted by radio because it's called the tribal drum theory where tribes throughout the world would generally congregate around the sonic uh, uh, area that the tribal drum could reach. So people wouldn't live outside of the center of the tribal drum because if you couldn't hear the drum, you didn't know when things were happening and you're no longer part of the tribe. Same thing with radio. Radio tower goes up in the center of the town. There's a radio signal. Everyone can tune into it. If you can't tune into that signal, you're no longer part of that society. You're, you're out of the loop. And so the size of the cities, the border of the city would generally match the, where the boundary of the radio tower could reach. And so most of the European cities fundamentally uh, grew to be the size of the radio tower signal. And and then, oh, after radio came and now you've got Internet, which goes beyond radio in terms of the the tribal drum reach and cities could turn into big metropolises, which they started doing after post Internet. You've now got massive metropolises. And then you get today (laughs) with Starlink coming on. This is also the, the Starlink is an extension of this tribal drum theory. You now can live on a boat in the middle of the ocean and people you're going to see an explosion of people living on boats in the middle of the ocean. Now that Starlink is coming on board and you're going to see people living in vans with Starlink antennas on the roof, living all over the goddamn place as a result of this expansion of the tribal drum theory due to Starlink and the competitors from China and Amazon and somebody in India, one of the big Indian telecoms, if I recall correctly. So to that point, How will, Lakeisha's great, great, great point, how will this impact cities? It will. It fundamentally, absolutely will. Not only will it impact cities, architects, which I should ping in my friend John if he's awake in uh, Stockholm, I'll bet he's not, he sleeps in, but... He has told me in many conversations that uh, all of the leading architects with, which, with, with, with whom he's very friendly are all talking about the fact that all the new developments that they're doing have in much, much, much smaller kitchens because they're already seeing the data around how people are doing their food ordering post-COVID, much less utilization of kitchen space, let much less prioritization of the kitchen as the center of the home. So uh, that's just to give you one. And then the buildings that they build, so inside the apartment, the kitchen is much smaller, but the package delivery area becomes much more formalized part of the actual building. You now need an actual package delivery area for your building, which that was a bizarre concept even five years ago. Now it's fundamental, absolutely crucial, and it needs to be secured, and it needs to uh, uh, take into account the delivery vehicles, you almost need like an official delivery vehicle loading zone for the Uber driver and the Amazon delivery and these robots and the drones that are all going to be doing all of these deliveries. And by the way, they used to build in storage locations inside of buildings, like, you know, especially in Europe, in Sweden, notably the basements of all of the buildings is where people have their storage of stuff. They Seasonally, keep all their winter clothes and their snowboards or whatever down in the basement in these lockers, these oversized lockers. That's kind of going away because it actually becomes cheaper to do that on the outside of the city in a warehouse using an app like my buddy Ari Mears' startup called Clutter, where you have an app and in real time you can call in any of your items. So bring me my snowboards, two clicks, boom. And then your snowboard gets delivered to your house, but it's stored in a warehouse on the outside of the city. So all the storage moves to the outside of the city. The kitchens who make all the food are moved to the outside of the city in these big cloud warehouses, but the food gets made by robots and delivered in less than 30 minutes, rather dependably. All the retail moves to the outside of the city into warehouses and you shop everything through your phone or VR, AR, whatever. So you're right. There's going to be tremendous, um, um, changes in cities in the places where it will happen first are the cities that have the most expensive real estate you know for these shops because they will be the most incentivized and the first to have to do that calculation the cost calculation of is it worth it to have all of this you know so these dense urban areas that have high cost per square foot or per square meter are likely to see this first i think tokyo will be that's, very very early yeah,
2: Tyler, a quick question on, on my end So if I'm seeing this correctly, and and please do correct me if I'm wrong, um, it looks to me like Facebook, just like the other major rivals, is is going after this model. And one of the things that we may very likely see coming up in the future is uh, uh, buy now, pay later, right? And if that comes up, then the whole uh, compensation through data or data mining may need to be done. Now, one way of doing that was through targeted ads, which has been lost. Plus, you've got the U.S. government and entirely the whole global government situation coming after them on on data, on account of everything that happened with Cambridge Analytica and similar cases. How do we see that playing out? And then, obviously, he's going to, you know, Mark and and Facebook, they're obviously going to try and come up with some sort of model to get into the e-commerce space and even get into last mile delivery, et cetera. I mean, do we have any sort of notion as to how you might expand upon that
3: theory? I think they're going to focus on being the shop front the same way they are today with you as your profile. It will happen there. They may even handle the, you know, the buy button. So they, they as, it, as it looks right now, I mean, there's so many links in the chain, you know, there's like uh, 15 links in the chain from the moment you're shopping till the moment the thing arrives at your door. And the question is, which of those links are they want going to want to do amazon uh, appears to want to have the whole entire chain and amazon's a different uh chain that exists simultaneously right where they've they are the discovery and they are the delivery and they only recently took over the delivery from fedex and ups and dhl and all of this right but they want to own it they want to own the whole process start to finish soup to nuts. Facebook, I, I really doubt they're going to get into the, deli- the actual delivery. I really doubt they're going to get into the warehouse and fulfillment part of it, because that's a huge logistical headache, by the way. And that isn't uh, where their focus has ever been. So I think they're really going to focus on the shop front, the where you make the purchase and the clicking of the buy button. And now with the Facebook pay integration, clearly they want to be part of the wallet piece of that. And then as soon as the payment's done, the order gets handed over to the warehouse or, you know, and then there's, a you know, another 10 links in that chain that they, I think, don't want to have nothing to do with, honestly. So not even I, the buy now, pay later with no interest. I bet they I, they income. very well might because that's part of the wallet part. Dan. And by, and for, what Faraz is talking about is this huge, there's uh, several technologies that are, or are, are, are innovations or solutions, I should say, that are booming at the moment. And one of those is buy now, pay later. It's booming everywhere on the planet. And we need to look no further than a headline from 12 hours ago that Apple itself is now doing buy now, pay later. Just to give you an idea of how big of a booming solution that is. uh, So no doubt Facebook will offer buy now, pay later as part of Facebook pay with all of these. Uh, shops that they integrate with, one of the options will be a buy now, pay later because of the data tracking benefits that come along with it. You're, I bet you're right. Yes, we're going to see a headline in about three months from now that Facebook pay button, when you click buy on the Facebook pay button, you're going to get a secondary pop-up that says, "Do you hey, you qualify for to pay in four equal payments with 0% interest. You know, click here to accept.
1: Yeah, that, that makes sense, conceptual sense. That's like part of the shop front. Right. I mean, but also think but think if you think about apple um conceptually right you think about them think about them as an own label manufacturer right just conceptually because it's their own label right, amazing they go all the way back so they so just think about them then they control if you think about they sell one product that their own label they go to design obviously design chips even even sourcing raw materials they're going way back there right all the way to manufacturing it, producing it, distributing it, um, occasionally they 've had to make compromises about how they distribute it, like make deals with Best Buy, but that 's just a compromise they, they control they 've got their own stores they've got you know online now they 're going to do payment. The only thing they don't do currently is actually physically deliver it. <laughs> you know who knows maybe, maybe they'll they 'll have their apple vans if they 've got enough products, but that's just not efficient right now, but conceptually, that 's all the way. I like the way you're thinking about this, like who takes which piece right and the people. I think Facebook takes away what we currently th- talk about as the retail shop front, right? Which is like, think about it as Best Buy, what they currently do, right? They, they don't manufacture, maybe a little bit of own label stuff, right? They kind of go further down, but the rest of it, they've got to manufacture, but everything that's in the till, the, the, the offering of the credit and all that. So conceptually that Facebook just takes that, right? All of that for now. Um, but I, I love that frame though, thinking about it, like the, the different pieces in the chain. It, and uh, it, this is
4: Michelle speaking. If I can just quickly add something. I love that you're always thinking step 10 steps ahead. But I'm far, as far as I'm aware on the product roadmap, there's no sort of pay, buy by non-pay later. But I think the main value now for merchants is the fact that the percentage they will have to give back to Facebook will be among the lowest, which makes it a very competitive um, payment checkout gateway for them and uh and i think that also gives them option because it's not like they have to be on instagram shop they can keep they can keep their product on the website also have instagram shop and then use facebook pay as a checkout um uh, as a as a checkout so this is pretty much the the opportunity to give merchants um a payment option where they don't necessarily need to give like a, a high percentage uh, back to to the to the yeah, to the company owning the the gateway.
8: So one of the things that's always great about this room is everything is so interlinked, right? I think this is obviously directly related to the change in cookies, the um, Apple's policy of uh, you know protecting your the tracking, um, you know. So there's this there's kind of like this dichotomy where previously. It was okay to not have totally identified users, you know, uh, bots, you know, kind of added to the overall, um, you know, uh, cost per click um, or your impressions. But now as we're pushing towards um, full identification on the Internet, you're going to assume that there's fewer and fewer um, impressions, um, you know, that so so everything's really driven towards actual transactions instead of, um, you know, advertising driven, click driven type, uh, you know, um, motivations in the industry. So I I think that's why you're seeing everybody rush towards the social commerce, because this is the one place where they they see there's this untapped market and there's actual realization of something in the form of a payment.
3: Well, there's another headline that helps unpack this that says, um, where did it go? Where did it go? Can I just make one last comment? Go ahead.
2: You see, what Chris said that it it just led me into another uh, story there with with Twitter, right? So if you remember, Twitter is playing around with NFTs, right? And now imagine and I don't know if this is possible.
3: And Twitter might. Twitter hasn't announced that yet. It's almost certain that they will, but it's a Square is the one right. that is. So uh, made let's it, assume.
2: Think, yeah. Let Let's assume for a second that Twitter does go ahead and play it. Yeah, around that's with a safe NFTs. assumption. Yeah right and, and and squares there, and, and then Twitter does something similar around the e-commerce space and of course social commerce, and then you know brands start setting up retail shops on on Twitter. Now NFTs in terms of data, when it comes to data of customers and what they're buying, etc, Twitter may actually be looking at digital sovereignty and the fact of that data actually belongs to those particular customers and they could sell it back to the merchants. Perhaps, um, yeah, can, I, I, and I you've, now, can, you've now created you've now created a market ecosystem for data, which is, which is the future. I mean, anyone in the NFT community or anyone in the data community, like yourself, would know that there's market ecosystems erupting all around the, all around the world today, talking about data ecosystems, data marketplaces where the customer actually controls their own data as an NFT and that NFT gets sold to merchants or whoever wants to buy it for a particular price, be it healthcare data, be it, be it you know, purchase data, be it what sort of data. I'll leave it at that, but that's it. Um,
4: that's for just, this is um, speaking. I just also wanted to clarify. Um, I, I mean, I like the idea that users can sell their data directly. First of all, there's no platform selling data per se, but brands can leverage it. But what makes it powerful, again, I think I mentioned it a couple of days ago, is when it's aggregated and empowered where we can actually leverage their intent, but a single user data isn't as powerful. So I'm not really sure how they'd be able to sell it, and, uh, and, and brand can actually uh, leverage the value out of it in, in that context. So they may be able to sell other things, but I, I don't see how people can sell the unique intent, let's say, purchase. Well, the platform would have to, to aggregate
2: print. it in some form, of course. Michelle. But in we'll order to aggregate
4: talking. that might actually break some of the, the privacy, um, that might be breaking some of the privacy um, uh, encryption and all of that. Yeah, maybe through aggregated modeling and so on, but it's not as, as simple. So that's just what I want to I want to highlight
5: Hey, Tyler. I just wanted to tap in something to what Faraz is saying and Michelle, what you're saying, because it's pretty valid. In the context of NFTs, they become the creator. And this is what Tyler's been talking about, the creator economy. As they become the creator, the way that they would actually generate is by creating community. And by creating community, brands will go after them based on their own marketing prowess, based on their own placement in their content community. And I think that's... The beauty of what you know, Tech News Around the World is doing as well. They're creating the content, and then people will be like, "Okay, well, I want my stuff inside Tech News Around the World." Okay, that makes sense then. That's how they could manage it.
9: Tada! I just wanted to connect. I've already tweeted this. Uh, We've been having this discussion, like, about the actual, you know, Apple and payments, and over the time, the really big news is coming out. Mastercard and Verizon announced partnership for five G contactless contact less payments right and basically what yeah so basically what does that mean is um, you know when you actually go more into the actual article itself you know uh, everybody who doesn't know about the amazon go stores that you can just simply go pick up the stuff and then walk out you don't need the checkout and they are aiming to uh, sort of provide similar solution to big uh, markets uh, uh, marketplaces like uh, walmart and all that and also small businesses, that similar sort of scenario is going to be developed where you can just simply walk into the store. And uh, as long as you're wearing a watch or you have your phone in your pocket, that, uh, that's going to be automatically take, going to take care of it. So God knows how they're going to sense that, but uh, uh, that's the main news. Uh, and that's not going to need, uh, you know, the conventional connectivity because it's going to be 5G. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's big news.
3: Yeah, the, we covered it when we met 12 hours ago, and um, um, we had we were fortunate to have Aaron with us at that time, who used to work at Mastercard and is just an absolute savant on these issues. And it seems to be related to the ability in the IoT universe that is now coming, where every device will have. A, a connected chip in it, um, and Ray Ozzie, who is a, kind of a, one of the leaders at Microsoft, um, now has a new startup where he's selling these little chips that you can put into any device to make it connect not only to Wi-Fi but to cellular signals. And so that, then you know you've really got connectivity. You don't. You're not even dependent on Wi-Fi anywhere where there's a cell signal. The the device, meaning the refrigerator or your vacuum, or any device in your house will now be able to connect all the time. And then this 5G MasterCard partnership then enables, believe it or not, the ability for your, let's use an an extreme example, your vacuum to be able to do payments of some kind. I'm not exactly sure what kind of payments you would need your vacuum to do, unless you were in the future, the vacuum manufacturer could sell you the vacuum on a per use basis as an extreme, unlogical example where you it's free to get the vacuum. You bring it home, you put it in your house to unlock it. You make a $5 payment and you pay the vacuum $5 per hour as an extreme example. But maybe there will be other that, that technology could unlock a whole new set of use cases of devices Because it's, it's, it's conceivable that the VR headsets that are coming out, Oculus, for example, that they're going to give you the Oculus headset for free in the not so distant future. Why would they do that? Because as soon as they start doing VR e-commerce, where you put the headset on and you're starting to shop in VR, and if they if Oculus gets a cut of those sales... Then very soon, the the they're going to realize they make money by giving these things away to people because people are buying and they monetize off of your purchases. So give these things out to everybody as quickly as possible. Or, you know, there will be a new business model enabled by the headline that you just read, which is devices that you pay for on a monthly. You so start subscribing to hardware in the same way we subscribe to software today like Spotify and Netflix and everything else, you will soon be subscribing to hardware like cars, which, by the way, Volvo has been testing so that you have a monthly subscription to a car or even a daily subscription to a car. And so that headline that you read of MasterCard partnering with Verizon about some 5G thing starts to make an interesting sense when you say, ah, I want to rent this car for the next hour and it has a chip and you just pay through Mastercard and it unlocks a card and you go and whatever. So it's not totally clear what all they have in mind as part of that technology. Um, but basically, Warr-
10: warranties and insurance is a ah, good place to see this implemented. Aaron's, warranties in, and insurance.
3: Yeah, we, that too. Aaron's in the audience apparently. Aaron, if you could jump up here and help us um, unpack this Mastercard Verizon headline that was that is still in uh, kind of top of news, that would be helpful. There he is. Thanks, Aaron.
0: Hey, morning, Tyler. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, so for me, it's uh, it's exactly what you were saying there. It's um, IoT. I think you're on mute, man. He,
3: he's going to have to pay the $5 to join yeah. Clubhouse, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can,
0: can you hear me again?
3: Yes, there you yeah, are. Yeah, we
0: yes. got you. Yeah, no, for, sorry. For me, it was just a case of... Um, uh with Mastercard and and Verizon tying together it's like you said with the the cars it's basically the internet of things so devices anywhere you know for years i worked on rings and watches and stuff that could be paid things that could be closely tethered to a mobile phone with 5g we're just going to enable so many more devices that you know previously uh wouldn't have been considered uh i think it was years ago we we did um a fridge where you could put, uh, you know, items in and out your fridge. We did it with Samsung. And now you can stick 5G modems in any places. And from there, for, you know, cars will have them. Um, You'll probably see e-scooters have them. So it just enables payments literally anywhere in the world where you think payments are needed.
3: So there is a ton of other Facebook news that we're going to thank you for that, Aaron. Uh, that we've only, believe it or not, only covered the top one story of the day, which was Netflix hired this guy Mike Verdu from Facebook ARVR team to join Netflix in their big, ambitious, futuristic drive into video games, which makes sense because they've already got everyone with this app that streams to their homes on their TVs and their phones, and video games as streaming makes a lot of sense. So, um, But they need to continue to innovate to keep the stock chart going up and to the right and future revenue growth and all that. Now that the the marketplace and subscriber base around the competing um, video streaming services, subscription services, is starting to gelatinize, which is the early stages of solidifying. Uh, they're already, as they should do, start planning chapter two, which is video, for them is going to be video games. And no doubt the AR VR thing will be very interesting for Netflix as well. And this v- Facebook VP of AR VR, as, as much as they say it's for video games, I have to imagine Netflix has some kind of plans in, in AR VR as well. And that will be very interesting. So that's the number one headline of the day. And then the number two headline um isn't even in the news yet. We only happen to have the, uh, the the luxury of having Michelle from Facebook join us every day. And she kind of gave us a preview as to what will be a big headline in about 12 hours from now, which is Facebook pay now working outside of Facebook in the whole ecosystem. And there was another headline um, that Facebook's, you know, th- this now starts off a big war between uh, Apple Pay and Facebook Pay and Google Pay and all of these, and indeed, indeed it does. But um, the number two story, in fact, based on the number of tweets around the world is that Twitter is expiring fleets, the their version of kind of the ephemeral 24-hour tweets that you see at the top of your Twitter app. And Kayvon, who is kind of head of product at Twitter at the moment, says they are winding down fleets on August 3rd, and we are seeing the impact. We weren't seeing the impact we'd like to see from a big bet on fleets, so we're going to pivot our focus elsewhere. And I think we know where that focus is. Uh, Those of us, and I could bring in Jane and a few other friends who... Uh, are friendly with Twitter, and we know what what twitter's other focus is, and we know what kvon 's other focus is Von was the creator of uh what was the app twitter bought what what, what did they call that um jesus christ it's what twitter's store the twitter's version of clubhouse is built on Von's startup that twitter bought called uh, Jesus christ what was it called it was their video periscope so, Twitter uh, Spaces is their version of Clubhouse. They are incredibly uh, focused on Twitter Spaces. And the, when you do a Twitter Space, their version of a Clubhouse room, the only way really to know that a Twitter Space is happening is in the fleets at the top. Well, they just said they're going to expire the fleets. So, how would you then know that there's a Twitter Space happening? And when Kayvon says we are expiring fleets to pivot our focus elsewhere, where else is that focus? Well, it's incredibly obvious where it's going because Kayvon's biggest focus in life is Twitter Spaces. And they have a a huge team dedicated to their version of Clubhouse. And simultaneously, those who follow Twitter Spaces closely know that they are focused on their, they don't yet have their version of the hallway where the the page where you see all of the rooms in Clubhouse that are happening, right? And very easy to do. Twitter doesn't have that. And as soon as they launch that, that's when Twitter Spaces is announcing they are really getting into the game of competing you know, in social audio. And that's where their focus is uh, going to be. So when he says, we are going to pivot our focus elsewhere, I can tell you with 100% certainty, their focus is going into social audio with their Twitter Spaces. And building out the hallway feature, which now that you can't find Twitter Spaces from Fleets, obviously they're, they've already said they're building the hallway. We don't know. We actually we have seen screenshots of what it looks like. Jane found them first, and as she always does, and that's why I just pinged her into the room. Uh, so keep an eye out if Jane joins. But um, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. So tw- that's the second biggest headline: is that Twitter is winding down. Uh, their fleets, as they call them. And then Kayvon had one other little comment he says to make a point clear. Ah, that's a stupid... We don't need to read that. Jack himself tweeted it. And then the third biggest headline is that Microsoft announces Windows 365 letting businesses stream Windows 10 or Windows 11 in a web browser, which is incredibly practically useful for Mac users who want to simply open a file inside of windows, you know, if somebody from your office sends you a file, you know, a PowerPoint file that you have trouble opening in, in, on a Mac. Now you can just open a web browser and run windows in a web browser. Wow. That would have been useful quite a few times over the years. And thank God it's finally here. But anyway, um, face, here's another Facebook story that we touched on briefly yesterday in Michelle, maybe you can add a little context, It's from the New York Times um, that Facebook staff detail the fight over CrowdTangle, which notes top engaging posts often showing right-wing sources dominating in April. Its team was reassigned. Executives at the social network Facebook have clashed over something called CrowdTangle, a Facebook-owned data tool that revealed users' high engagement levels with right-wing media sources. Did we lose Michelle? And apparently some people here's a cut. It was written by Kevin Roos and he's done quite a bit of tweeting about this article that he wrote for the New York times. And some of what he additional context that he's tweeting, he says, I've had a lot of run-ins with Facebook over the years, but the blowback I've gotten when Facebook's, Uh, started showing huge engagement for pro-Trump pundits was unusually intense. It turns out that top execs were terrified that they'd be blamed for Trump's re-election. And CrowdTangle is a critical tool for reporters and researchers studying social media's influence on politics and culture. It's the gold standard, but Facebook execs turned on it last year when it became a reputational risk because it's basically showing the data that right-wing semi-extremism, Trump supporters uh, are absolutely booming on Facebook. And so their own internal tool shows that Facebook itself is sort of a haven for Trump supporters. And the data shows it. That's the data. And so now they're kind of trying to obfuscate or downplay or even hide this tool, uh, tangle, that is showing data and transparency that they don't like the results of. And that has even led to somebody resigning, a kind of a VP, um, stepping down from Facebook because now that Facebook is hiding the tool, he says, well, you're hiding transparency. You're hiding the reality. You're hiding this tool because you don't like the, the results of what the tool is reporting. And Kevin says again, I was told in the course of reporting this, for New York times that a few Facebook staffers were told to turn on push notifications for my tweets during, uh, so that they could track what Kevin was saying via Twitter. And I would like to formally apologize to those people for being so goddamn boring that they need to now watch Kevin's tweets closely, uh, in, in the results because they are worried about this article in the New York times exposing that far right extremism is running amok in Facebook and whatnot. Whatever. So. He
7: wrote a, a huge number of articles mm-hmm. during and right after the election mm-hmm. about that. And every single one of them mentioned CrowdTangle, mm-hmm. which is not their internal
3: mm-hmm. tool that
7: mm-hmm. anyone can use. Mm-hmm. And they just use it.
3: Yeah. Thank you for that, Vincent. And on the... The actually the next biggest story, so this would be number one, two, three, four, five, is that Mark Zuckerberg says Facebook will pay one billion dollars to creators by the end of 2022. Creators can earn money using Instagram or Facebook tools or by hitting milestones. Facebook is setting up a program to pay a billion dollars to creators and <clears throat> One wonders if this was cleverly announced at the same time to (laughs) take away the thunder from the New York Times story, perhaps, but um, that's my own cynical uh, approach to life. So Facebook is setting up this program and they are saying that they hope to have millions of people make a living on Facebook or to enable millions of people to make a living on Facebook, not Earn some money, not earn milk money or coffee money or even school money, make a living, make a living, meaning your tyler. job, your career yes amen
5: tyler it 's super fascinating that you just said that yeah, and you know, kudos to the team at Facebook on this little, little this little piece because what you just described is really fascinating because I did something last night that was really interesting, and listening to everything that every, we 've been talking about Facebook and how they 're really trying to make. You do business within the platform. I literally was going into my account for my yoga space and I was just going to make a simple ad, right? I was just going to go promote a post. Mm. And then I noticed, wait a second, the whole posting for a business page is different now. It's now a business suite, which is really fascinating. And I went in and it's a content creator and a scheduler. And it's also connecting my Instagram for my business as well. And I'm like, holy shit. I was like, you just knocked out Planoly, Plan That, and all these other social media calendar apps that connect to, to let you strategize your Instagram strategy mm-hmm. inside business suite. Mm-hmm. And literally, this is the this is the big one. Yeah. That all took me two minutes. Mm-hmm. That y- took me so fast to do. Mm-hmm. Two minutes. And it was done. I was like, wow. And it's scary how fast that was. But to your point about it becoming us, it's allowing also post-pandemic for those brick and mortar businesses as well like Betty's bake shop or whatever to be able to seamlessly pivot their storefront to get business from the digital customer.
3: Mhm. Yep, it's so, uh, they, they got to build those back end tools to enable all of it. Yeah, Karim.
9: So basically let me give you perspective. So um you know I am aware of people and I'm talking about the average people. I'm not talking about the people who have got you know, their videos has been watched million times or what not. I'm talking about the regular ones on the YouTube, like pretty much every other day they post something and that gets them enough viewership, which gives them about three to $5,000 a month. So that's the earning living part I'm talking about. Now, what historically has been happening is that, you know, people would just make a video, they touch up a little bit in terms of the post-production and everything, keep that between 7 to 10 minutes, and that would draw the, all the viewership on it. And that's how they earn, because it's been monetized, you have 1000 subscribers, which is minimum, and then um, minimum number of viewership actually goes. So YouTube has been happening for past five years. Now, Facebook, on the other hand, has got this live thing going on for ages, and haven't been able to, um, you know, we discussed this particular point that haven't been able to, you know, draw the right content creators who are actually going live, because the Facebook was the pioneer in terms of bringing live element, And YouTube did that like way later on, but nobody would go to Facebook because they aren't able to monetize. And here comes in the picture because, yeah.
3: Well, you're right. So So by the way, oh sorry. So here's a very important related point, and now, and I've been saying it many times, but now there's an actual headline about it that I can kind of verify my conspiracy theory. Uh, Just give me two seconds to find it it says that uh 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 here it is uh, a very few uh, as very few is from bloomberg today as very few apple users opt into tracking facebook's many advertisers are now noticing a negative impact on tracking campaigns targeting new customers and more people give ios apps permission to track their behavior only 25% of the time. So now they've lost 75% of iPhone users are not opting into Facebook being in others, being able to track them the way that they once did. And that's had a tremendous impact on Facebook's traditional fundamental business as an ad network. And so it's not at all a coincidence uh, that they are very quickly moving into two things, this uh, social commerce thing that we talked about and the creator economy, which actually play together. So let me read this, uh, the Facebook's official website about investing 1 billion into creators. And the reason that the creators are what's gonna drive the awareness of the social commerce. They play hand in hand. So let me read this. It says, by the end of 2022, we plan to invest over a billion in, that's a lot, into programs that give creators new ways to earn money for the content they create on Facebook and Instagram. From artists to style experts and budding entrepreneurs, creators drive so much of the passion and creativity we see across our apps as we continue building creative tools like Live Audio Rooms, the first one they name, which is their version of Clubhouse, and Bulletin, which is their version of Substack, blatant carbon copies in both cases, as well as monetization products like Stars and Affiliate, What is affiliate? I'm glad you asked. That's what I'm talking about. That is how uh, creators merge with the social commerce because the influencers are what's going to drive a lot of the awareness and actual foot traffic into these mom and pop shops on Instagram and WhatsApp and on Facebook is create this affiliate, as they call it, stars and affiliates is, um, if you have a little Aunt Betty's cake shop on Instagram, Aunt Betty has no followers for her little shop on Instagram. But there are influencers on Instagram who are influencers on the topic of cakes, believe it or not. Those exist. And so they're now going to match the cake influencers with Aunt Betty's Cake Shop if you happen to live in the delivery zone of Aunt Betty's Cake Shop. So she they were going to do the best of both. They're going to marry those two together in a win-win scenario where the, influ- the cake influencer is going to get a cut and monetize her, his or her influence to drive traffic and sales to Aunt Betty's cake shop, and it's a win-win. Aunt Betty's getting now digitized her business. She's now big into e-commerce. She's got direct inbound traffic as a result of these influencers who themselves don't have cake shops, and. It's a win-win, and that's what this affiliate thing is all about, and that's why uh, influencers will have other ways to monetize as well, as if they say through live audio rooms and their version of Substack and everything else. And the article continues to say, we also want to reward creators, especially those who are just starting out for creating content, for creating content their communities love. The investment will include new bonus programs to pay eligible creators for hitting certain milestones when they use our creative and monetization tools we will also provide seed funding for creators to produce their content. Our goal is to help as many creators as possible find sustainable long-term success on our apps. Introducing bonuses, we're introducing a bonus program that will reward a wide variety of creators for sharing great content that people enjoy. Bonuses will also help creators understand. And why are they doing this? Why is Facebook going to throw out a billion dollars? Because it is now officially, you're hearing it here for the first time, the race is on now to all of these platforms that are now becoming e-commerce portals from TikTok and Facebook and Instagram, and even Pinterest just announced their partnership with Shopify because they're getting into the game. And YouTube, who's had the head start because they've been doing it for a decade, that where are these content creators going to focus their content creation of course they're going to do it wherever they make the most money and that's why facebook is built up a fund to let the make it make it rain in facebook land on these creators so if you're a creator and you come in they want you to start feeling the rain you know they're going to be throwing dollars on you like a pole dancer at a strip club if you're making content in facebook land so Because then you can go over to YouTube and YouTube's making it rain over there for a lot of people. And they're doing it on a a basically 50-50 split. The Facebook, uh, sorry, the YouTube creators basically get about 50% of the ad revenue. It'll be very interesting. to see what the splits are everywhere else. But honestly, the creators aren't so focused on the revenue split. They're more focused on how much actual money they're actually going to be making. uh, The net uh, uh, result of their effort. Of time spent. So Facebook needs to start making it rain in Facebook land for creators. So does TikTok. So does Pinterest. And so they're competing. They are competing for the creators because whoever has the creators and the influencers will have a better uh, economy ecosystem for this huge social commerce. And TikTok is in a really good position. And so is YouTube because YouTube is trying to go into TikTok. Because that's one of the other headlines in the past day or two is that YouTube just announced yesterday the global launch of what they're calling YouTube Shorts, which is one minute, two minute, three minute TikTok style vertical vertical videos, which is TikTok. And they have to do that because TikTok is booming, which is another headline I'm going to read in the, in the next few headlines. It's a huge battle now that we we're, we've now gone into the second leg of the triathlon. We just finished. The swimming section of the triathlon, which was the social networks, that was swimming. And now we're going into bicycles, which is the e-commerceification leg of the run. Everyone's jumping out of the pool and getting on their bikes. And it's now a, a whole new chapter two of the race. And this part's about money, not about likes and clicks and stars and hearts and follows. It's very useful. If you did well in the first part of the race, it's going to help you in the second part of the race. (laughs) But it's now a whole second chapter, and it's interesting to see them all pivoting so frantically. But as I, the last headline that I just read that the iOS users are now not opting into, you know, ad tracking is sort of forcing this whole second chapter of this race for Facebook. Like, Facebook's got to move away from the traditional, you know, uh, ad creation. aspect of their traditional business. And yeah, it's all working out fine. They've got this whole new second chapter to focus on. So anyway, uh, that's from Bloomberg. I need to tweet that link out so that you can see it with your own eyeballs at the Tech News Twitter account, TNATW. You can see it on my photo here in Clubhouse. So other big stories that we need to jump into, because there's a lot of really good stories today. So we've actually only done Three, we covered Microsoft. We uh, Actually, we did Facebook staff talking about CrowdTangle and the $1 billion creators. The next stories are that Android 12, which is coming out soon, introduces scrolling screenshots of faster auto-rotate using facial detection to determine the phone's orientation and more features. That's great. Next story is Google Threat Anal- Analysis Group breaks down three recent malware campaigns likely state backed the question is which state you basically have two choices there and uh, and notes a large uptick in the in the in the wild zero day attacks this year. Zero day vulnerabilities are unknown software flaws until they're identified and fixed they can be exploited by attackers and take over your phone completely and Google seeing a huge uptick in these attacks and as we, it's very much related to all of the other hijinks we've been seeing with these ransomware attacks. Um, and it's kind of a boring article, but Google's done the brilliant homework of sh- actually <laughs> tracking the number of attacks that they've had every year. And you can now see a graph of the number of attacks they've had each year. And indeed, there was um number of in the... Ta- Uh, you can see each year, year by year, how these attacks are growing because the team at Google uh, are a bunch of geeks and they love pie charts and, and, and graphs and charts. And now you can see in the tweet that I just tweeted out, Google's making it public to the world, how many attacks they are receiving and where they're receiving them and through and how and where and why. And they recently have started naming names. Facebook as well has started naming names. And it turns out, Every, all of these attacks are coming from Russia and China but, and once in a while from North Korea. It's kind of interesting how this is playing out. So, And
8: what's also interesting is there's a um, basically an exploit marketplace. Um, and yeah. previously, iOS was the most expensive exploits. But like last year, all of the iOS exploits got really cheap, indicating there was like a lot of supply.
3: So the next big story, WhatsApp begins a limited beta for multi-device support, letting users access WhatsApp on, their, on up to four non-phone devices without an active smartphone connection. Because today, if you're using WhatsApp, which, by the way, previously was a chat app and is very soon about to become an e-commerce app, almost primarily for lots of people, as has happened in Asia with uh, WeChat. WeChat was very similar to WhatsApp. It was a chat app. Next thing you know, it turns into a e-commerce portal where people are buying and selling stuff. We've already seen the screenshots. We already know it's coming. And we've already seen the predecessor in China, which is WeChat, which has boomed as a payment system and as an e-commerce portal. And now that it's becoming an e-commerce portal, guess what? They're gonna make it usable on your laptop. Which it is today, but you have to currently, many of you know who've tried this, if you have WhatsApp on your phone and you want to use WhatsApp on your laptop, it won't let you do both simultaneously. It forces you to sign out of one device to transfer everything over to the other device and you use it for an hour or two on your laptop and then you got to sign out again using this crazy QR code system and transfer your active session back to your phone. And now it's dead on your laptop. And now they're going to allow you to have it active on your phone, active on your laptop, and three other devices all simultaneously. Why are they doing this? Because it's going to become the basis of your future business is going to be in some part WhatsApp on your laptop. And you're going to not... It's kind of stupid to try and manage your entire business from your goddamn phone. It does work. You can do it. But people are going to want to be able to also do all of this e commerceification of their future you know business on their laptop and on their desktop and on their phone all simultaneously and that's why it's not a surprise that WhatsApp begins a limited beta of multi-device support letting users access WhatsApp on their four non-phone devices without an active smartphone connection no. I don't know Tyler that's yep.
9: already been there for ages I don't know No but I just it's not the news
3: Yes it is news sure. As I just explained, I don't
9: know. I've been, I've been using it for a while. I mean, it's yes. multi multi session on different devices.
3: Mm, not so, not legally through WhatsApp natively.
9: Uh, not multi. I, I can use that on my phone, and I can use on my laptop, and yeah, it just some how, how many- I can actually function about. Uh, I have done so, like in parallel on three, at least three devices, uh, in one place, one place, one time. Mm. Uh, just
4: maybe to 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 clarify here, here we're referring to mobile devices, which is not possible at the moment to use, like two mobile devices. So, um, but yeah, you can use a desktop and a mobile currently. You can actually use both at the same time.
3: Mm. Okay. Facebook says it's seeking the recusal of FTC chair Lena Khan. is the other story that we spent a lot of time talking about in the last session 12 hours ago, which Amazon has done the same. <clears throat> and uh, when in the FTC antitrust case against Facebook was thrown out, basically, and they said based on the current laws in the US, this does not apply. Facebook is not at all a monopoly in any sense based on the current laws of the US system. So, and Amy Klobuchar, who kind of runs this game, even admitted if we're going to even try and bring forth this antitrusting on Facebook, we need to go back and write entirely new laws. Because when these laws were written you know, decades ago, uh, we never had anything like a social network in mind. So they're not applicable. We should just stop playing games and, and even pretending that Facebook is a monopoly by the traditional definitions of monopoly. And we'll have to go back and rewrite the rules. And so that's the current, st- it's going to take the U.S. quite a long time to write new antitrust type rules specific to social networks. And in any case, Facebook is saying that Lena Khan, the new newly appointed chair of the FTC, um, might not be um, completely uh, fair in her uh, approach to this because of previous uh, activities before becoming the FTC chair. And that's really been Amazon's point because her thesis paper at Yale, um, w- which wasn't that long ago, actually, she's like 32 years old, uh, was all about Amazon's kind of antitrust position. So anyway, it's not a surprise to see the tech companies are not big fans of the new FTC chair, Lena Khan. Justin
7: said yesterday that something is going to happen, though,
3: that
7: that there is going to be some movement on the tech companies this year. It may not be a rewrite of the antitrust provisions so much as it might be what is in the five current bills that are pending in the legislature. But he said that there's enormous bipartisan support.
3: Yep which there is, and it's going to be super interesting to see what happens here, actually, because from the big picture, you've got the big tech companies and you've got the government. And now the government that one of the interesting dilemmas at hand is the big tech companies are now the big funders of government. So <laughs> if you know anything about American politics, that makes things a little bit tricky Uh, because these these. Politicians don't like to cut the, bite the hand that feeds them. So w- on a basic level, what could happen is new restrictions will be come into place that appear to be against big tech, but in reality are not. And they're very cleverly crafted to give the appearance to the public and to journalists that this is, in fact, a blow to big tech. But in fact, it actually, in a weird, a counterintuitive way, actually uh, solidifies the, the, entrenches the dominance of big tech. And we can look at GDPR as an example of that in the, in the EU, where it uh, appeared to be a blow to big tech, but in fact wasn't. And it's actually a blow to the uh, up and coming competitors Um Because once you are at the top of the mountain, it's hard to knock you down. And if you make the game harder fundamentally for everybody, well, then it just makes it harder for everyone to get to the top of the mountain and the people at the top of the mountain get to stay there. So it's going to be interesting to actually look very closely, incredibly closely with very critical analysis at whatever ends up happening um, to all of these. Yeah, something's going to happen. The question is what, and will it be a head fake counterintuitive collab secret backdoor collaboration with big tech no doubt they're going to have some sort of seat at the table they have conversations daily with big tech ha, has a seat at the table with the politicians that are writing these regulations because they're big funders of them so it'll be
7: especially mark zuckerberg yep. mark zuckerberg has covered all his bases yep. and what they will probably do is some kind of legislation that only these companies can afford to pay the fines on or something like that. Yeah. So that, you know, they'll, they'll be fined rigorously, but they can afford it and nobody else can.
3: Yeah. So let's, let's keep our eyes peeled on that one. That's an ongoing everyday update kind of thing. And then we covered the iOS users opting out. We covered clubhouse back channel, Which, by the way, any quick comments thus far on back channel
1: uh, I'm not a big fan
3: oh really i I thought it looks great I thought if
1: oh, it's great I, I mean i i of course gotta use it and and play with it um what I love about clubhouse is is that it uh people me functionally i i yeah I have a real focus issue, so for me uh just uh being focused on like listening to you and the and the team here. Um, You know, at the moment, we we functionally look at, I I, I think the headline thing is helpful on Twitter. Uh, So maybe if that becomes, you know, we can see the headlines so we can see what what the context is and read it quickly. That's helpful. So I I flick into Twitter and do that. Occasionally, there's messages from either you or Cheryl or or somebody, you know, that's more admin-y. That's helpful, right? But beyond that, trying to have a chat while uh, doing this, I, I personally just... Just I, I'm I'm unique with like
3: that, but yeah, yeah. One one thing I noticed. No, you're
7: when... not. Every time they make an app more complicated, they dial out a certain number of users who are unwilling to undertake the cognitive load. Which is, by the way, how I feel about green room.
3: Well, by the way, Doctor Francine, that leads to this headline that is not a headline yet, but it should be and would be. Um, green room just did a new update to their app and in the new update they've removed gems oh boy so the people the people who (laughs) spent the past thank effing god i know right so um the gems became an absolute shit show over there and Half of the rooms, it seemed like in the past few days, were purely nothing but people trying to collect, rub gems all over their goddamn selves. It became these gem orgies of these gem hoarders. Um, it was Sorry. truly That's bizarre, you...
6: <laughs>
3: truly bizarre behavior of these gem hoarders. And now they've removed gems. And I have to wonder what those people who spent the past month sitting in those rooms gemming each other up are now doing
8: doing math, staying up 24-7 to get maximum gem.
3: Gemming it up. It was it, they're they are gem whores. That's that's the unofficial term. But the what are they gonna do with themselves now that the gems are gone? But thank God they are. What an interesting social experiment that was. And
2: T- Tyler, the other thing on Cal's point yes. that on terms of social experiment, I mean, what I find whenever there was the ability to, to have the kind of chat running and the conversation running, Cal, was what you found was it just split the community
3: because there was a, there's a whole like island of like chat going on in the chat and then right. there was the room, so it, it just didn't feel right. You know? Well, here here's the point. H- here's what well, I, I noticed. You can't turn it off. Right. Sorry. So now that gems are gone, it removes a distraction and the chat room is in Spotify is a distraction. I think we would all agree with that because when you're in a clubhouse room, there's no distractions. There's no gems. There's no side room until now. There now is the back channel. And the question is how to balance the back channel so it doesn't distract from the conversation. It's a a truly difficult task to balance that correctly in terms of the user interface. Now, here another point I want to make is people are using um, Twitter dms as the i think the primary back channel and that's a problem for clubhouse especially as twitter today subversively announced they're now going to be focusing more on their version of clubhouse called twitter spaces and we covered that at the beginning of about an hour ago when we started which is they're shutting down fleets and they're now going to focus on something else, they said. And we know what that other thing is. It's their version of Clubhouse called Twitter Spaces. So if people are using Twitter as the DMs, well, that becomes a little bit dangerous for Clubhouse when Twitter's also building up their version of Clubhouse and you're using Twitter for your DMs. Next thing you know, you're using Twitter for your Clubhouse. So hence, they need to make something that stops people from using Twitter DMs as their back channel. So they're now bringing the back channel to Clubhouse, even though it will potentially distract from the conversation in Clubhouse. Now, having said all that, when Cal and I and Cheryl, from because I was one of the very, the first thousand uh, approved Twitter space creators, were testing tech news around the world in Twitter long, long ago. And what we noticed is that there were multiple features they had added, like the ability for anybody in the audience to give emojis and all kinds of stuff and even DM little emojis to each other and et cetera, et cetera. It was a distraction and it distracted from the conversation. And then I, re- and then I went over to a Green Room and I realized all the gems are a tremendous distraction. And I realized Clubhouse actually has a unique advantage in all of this by not having distractions, by enabling, focusing on the conversations because what it did was, The types of conversations that you can have is that it's not a coincidence that in green room where there's all these gems, you're not going to have serious conversations. You're not going to have politicians and scientists and real important VIP conversations in a room where people are throwing fucking gems at each other oh, thank you, Joe Biden, for your awesome comments. I'm going to gem you now. It just seems absolutely absurd. It seems very childish. So Clubhouse is actually environmentally an adult-type environment where you can have adult-type conversations, and Green Room is a, a great place to be for kids who want to have re- absolutely retarded, stupid conversations. So, Well, well Tyler, just to, just to make a point, before the uh,
6: the Clubhouse people went over to Green Room, yeah, the, the, it's the clubhouse people that ruined the gem thing. I'm not a fan of the gems anyway, but it was the clubhouse people that made everything a gem farm. So when it was, when it was locker room, which was the predecessor, fair point. The gym. The, the, okay. So yeah, so the gems were set up. So it to be kind of like what we do with the microphones where we, where we flick our microphone as an applause and they didn't, the, the locker room people didn't abuse it. Okay. It's, you know, the people on clubhouse going over at the green room, you know, uh, did the thing with the gems yeah fair point
5: so what what ken is saying is the 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 clubhouse fans went over to green room to spoil their reputation
3: yeah but the people (laughs) the people who went over to green room were also the ones who were super concerned about having first mover advantage of collecting the most followers and whatnot and collecting the most gems And that's why you're right. They did turn it into a gem farm because there's a
1: certain segment. I agree. There's a certain segment of clubhouse, right? And and I think, uh, yeah, that 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 are that are obsessed with follower counts.
3: And that's why they wanted to be the first jump on over there because the first people who got into Clubhouse also were part, you know, also benefited by having the most followers initially and blah 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 blah. So they got over there, but just um... yeah just quickly on that
4: uh, title i think it's quite interesting because there were people were already using um green room before it becomes the the new uh, Spotify brand but they didn't have that behavior correct and i was in a room there one day where one was actually saying that most of them never reached 3k gems and this use case of gems was quite appalling to them and they were pretty shocked that the experience just got ruined like that over 24 hours so it looks like that is a clubhouse behavior that disrupted the the, the, the initial intention and usage of oh the, absolutely I can of the experience there.
6: There. I won't mention names but with it, there's certain people who like highly prominent I would say whatever you want to say on clubhouse who um you know are trying to monetize or do whatever they're doing and that they want to you know have followers and they're the ones who did it
3: so, by the way, on this issue of back channel, of Clubhouse back channel, Cal found something out. You want to? You want me to share it, Cal? You want to do it?
1: Oh, on the on the blocking. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I, I'm just. I just heard yesterday in one of the rooms. I'm sure people here know more. Um, apparently, you can um, figure out who's blocked you, which I think uh, I know that Paul and Rowan had said before that they wanted to keep that anonymous so that it's uh, safe for everyone. But apparently, if you try and DM somebody that's blocked you, it'll say you can't DM them. So you can kind of figure out more directly and quickly who's blocked you. Um, so that might be an issue. I don't know. I, I I just heard that yesterday. If anybody's got more on that, I don't know. But that might be that might work against the 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 philosophy that I think I've heard Paul say that they they wanted to uh, you know for the safety of the person keep it anonymous who's blocked who. But anyway.
3: I just saw that. Super interesting. Yeah. So on St- the on the issue, somebody was trying to say something?
1: Yeah, I'm just trying to say. So if that's the case, does Clubhouse still think that they don't have to improve on the on the blocking function with all this blocking nonsense?
3: So on TikTok. No, no, I'm,
5: just, I'm just wondering, do they see this as a good thing or do they see, this, see it as something that they should, they should improve on, on this blocking
6: mechanism?
3: I, it I rarely know. comes sure. up. Like yeah, if you go to the town know. hall meetings, it's never, it's it's not at all a, a top issue. So TikTok now automatically removes violated content identified upon upload. So they have uh, an automatic, automated, curated. And this is not a surprise, but it's now official. TikTok now automatically removes um violative content identified upon upload so if you try to upload content into tiktok they are scanning it as you're uploading it and if it is in violation of something then it doesn't you're not allowed to post it and that is the future And TikTok is ahead, as usual. TikTok's from China. So TikTok is not a surprise that they would be the first to do this because good luck trying to upload a photo of Tank Man from Tiananmen Square into TikTok. That ain't going to happen. And in fact, your phone might explode if you try to do that. So I wouldn't suggest you even try it. So, um, But that is the future. And thank you to Gareth for sending that in. And we should read a little more essence of this article because this is going to come to every app on your phone in the very near future, especially and directly related to the fact that every app is going to force you to uh, identify yourself with state IDs um, in the near future, which is a topic we are starting to cover on a nearly daily basis now. And this plays right into that narrative thread. TikTok is expanding its new automatic content removal system in the US and Canada to identify violative content before anyone sees it. Because that's the whole point, is these states and governments don't want people seeing certain stuff. And each state has different stuff that they don't want people to see. India doesn't want you to see stuff that is not favorable to Modi. Russia doesn't want you to see stuff that is unfavorable to Big Vladdy Daddy. And if you try and upload stuff that they've told those apps to not show They've now got a um, ban, you know. Um, I don't like to use the word blacklists, but what is the right word to use? They've got a list of content that will not be accepted and they're going to remove it on upload. As part of its effort to maintain a welcoming and safe environment, TikTok is enhancing its system for the detection and removal of content that violates its guidelines. Over the past year, TikTok has been testing ways to identify and remove violative content as well as notify creators when their content is removed. Now the platform is rolling out the experimental system to its communities in the U.S. and Canada, which no doubt they've had in China for quite a while, (laughs) as you can imagine. The U.S.-based safety team behind the system, which is responsible for developing and enforcing safety strategies across the U.S. and Canada, seeks to integrate the use of preliminary technology that scans freshly uploaded content for possible violations and then manually reviews them before the confirmed violative content is removed and the creator is notified. With the new system in place, TikTok will automatically remove specific types of violative content in addition to removals that are manually confirmed by members of the safety team. And here's the quote. Automation will be reserved for content categories where our technology has the highest degree of accuracy, starting with violations of our policies on minor safety, adult nudity, sexual activities, violent and graphic content, and illegal activities, and regulated goods, so copyrighted goods, even perhaps, um, explains Ericon, head of U.S. safety of TikTok. While no technology can be completely accurate in moderating content, where decisions often require high degree of context or nuance, we'll keep improving the precision of our technology to minimize incorrect removals. And that's the future, folks. They're all going to have to do that very soon. Simultaneous to, as no doubt TikTok already does in China, is uh, identity verification of all users. That, make no mistake, that is coming. And make no mistake, every country is now developing blacklists for each of these apps to tell them which content to remove. That's. Welcome to 2021. Other TikTok news. TikTok brings its TV app to Amazon Fire TV. And now you're seeing how YouTube did YouTube Shorts to compete with TikTok. TikTok is bringing its TV app to Amazon Fire TV and Amazon, TikTok's going the opposite direction. So that these t- YouTube and TikTok are going head to head. YouTube's copying TikTok on YouTube Shorts. They just announced yesterday, 24 hours ago, and less than 24 hours later, TikTok announces they're bringing their TV app to Amazon Fire TV and anywhere else they can go because they want to compete with YouTube. They're going to be doing longer form content. In fact, that, Instagram is as well. There was a headline about a week ago that Instagram is lengthening the length of the videos. TikTok's lengthening the forms of the videos. Actually, the headline from Instagram was they're doing much more uh, focus on moving away from photos to videos. TikTok's adding the to the length of the videos. And it's a fun game. They're all, you know, racing towards uh becoming the ultimate e-commerce platforms, which are gonna be live stream. And we already know Lakeisha and I already know this. That the e-com the, the real e-commerce money is in live streaming. And so TikTok and Instagram And Facebook and all these apps are all going to become live streaming apps. And as we've already seen in China, you're going to need to register your face with facial recognition apps and verify yourself with state identification to do live streaming. Because once you start live streaming, you can start saying any goddamn crazy thought that comes into your silly head. And the states don't like that. And they want to control that. And if you try try to jump, if you say something on a live streaming app in China that goes against what the state says, your live streaming is shut down in near real time and you have visitors visiting your door minutes later. That's happening now in China, reported. Ken? Hey, Tyler,
6: I think it's going to be very interesting what happens in regards to all of these apps, including uh, TikTok in regards to the music industry because there's a lot of people using copyrighted True. music without paying the copyrights right. uh, on a lot of these
3: apps. Correct. It's a big issue. And they intentionally talk over the music, as I do here in Clubhouse when I play Muramasa's track here, which I'm endlessly fond of, and I talk over it so to confuse the algorithm so it can't detect that I'm violating you know, the, the play performance rights of that artist or whoever owns the streaming rights of that artist, which Clubhouse is going to have to deal with in the very near future. You're right. The music uh, copyright issue is an issue as well. Streaming rights, we should say, to be clear.
6: I I am amazed that there's actually rooms on Clubhouse that basically are devoted to playing Disney music at some point. Well, check this out. Because Disney's the most aggressive company in the world. They're protecting that stuff. True,
3: but check this out. It gets far more interesting than that because Spotify has Green Room, And there are greenhouse rooms dedicated to live listening. And that is actually a huge opportunity. Because on Spotify today, you stream music independently yourself. One stream to one listener. In the near future, you're going to have one stream to 10,000 listeners because you're going to have all of Taylor Swift's fans on Taylor Swift's page in their version of a clubhouse room, all listening to the same song simultaneously. And Taylor Swift's going to love that, actually, because she's going to monetize that stream 10,000 times. It's 10,000 streams rather than one. And, her fans and are, if we
8: ever go back to touring, she'll know exactly where those people are and know where to target her. She already
3: has right. that through Spotify, by the way. That's why I am
9: still Tyler, yeah. uh, in in Clubhouse, there are plenty of rooms where there are people are running 24-7 or uh, radio stations where they're streaming all this back-to-back. They have the playlist, and they've been playing it for ages. Well, check this out. I don't know whether
3: how... In, yeah. gr- in Green Room already... Green green room, uh, the users, like ourselves, cannot make clubs. There are no clubs. There are what are called groups. But again, users cannot create groups. Only the app itself makes the groups. And there's a group for general listening. There's a group for NFL and NHL and all the sports leagues. And there's a group for um, music listening that the app itself has made. And people go in there and listen to music endlessly. And the future of one of the tremendous opportunities for Spotify and why they bought uh, that app, that Clubhouse co- copy, which was previously called uh, cl- uh, a locker, room, locker Room, now is called Green Room, is because once they m- merge it into the mother Spotify app, which they call Live Audio, because. Previously, Spotify content is not live audio. It's unlive audio. It's pre-recorded music or podcasts. And now you're going to have what they call live audio. And we know this because the CEO of the app that they acquired, the Green Room app called Locker Room, um, the CEO of that, his new title at Spotify is VP of live audio at Spotify on his LinkedIn profile. So... Live audio is going to be a huge new part of the native Spotify app. Today it has songs, music, podcasts, and there'll be a new third tab called live audio. And it will be thousands, if not tens of thousands of live audio rooms simultaneously. And you as a Spotify user already are following, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 different artists in Spotify. And they know who you're following. And... You and the 50,000 other YouTube people, uh, YouTube probably has 5 million followers, the band U2, or Coldplay. You, Coldplay has 10 million followers. So the, those 10 million cl- Coldplay followers can now all have a Coldplay. Every, there will be a room for every artist in Spotify. And we're talking millions of artists. We're talking millions of rooms that all have... Millions of followers. So, and, a- and we should point out that the music labels all own stock in
6: Spotify, including Taylor Swift has uh, an equity deal she worked out for herself and others on Spotify. Right, and so they'll be able to make whatever subsequent deals they need to make to get the to use the music as they want to use it because they've got the inside track that Clubhouse doesn't have on that.
3: Well, here's where it gets really interesting: is if there are now every Spotify artist, of which there are a million, all have all of their followers, every artist, many of the top artists have millions of followers, and they now have live audio rooms dedicated to their fans listening to their songs as a group collectively. That's going to increase the number of streams exponentially because, as I said, you're now when a Taylor Swift fan listens to a Taylor Swift song, it's one-to-one. That's one stream. And when it's one stream going to you know, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 Taylor Swift fans listening in the room together and they're chatting in the back channel or whatever. Uh, That's 50,000 streams, not one, which Taylor Swift loves because it's going to boost her, you know, streaming on Spotify and the labels and the rights owners of those streams is really going to love. But it gets crazy because the artists now, For the first time, many people are going to point out, ah, but the artists aren't going to love that because they don't own the streaming rights and they don't get paid for more streams. Artists don't get paid from Spotify. And actually, generally, that's correct. And Gareth in the audience can, those in the music biz know, and Sarah certainly knows this is true. 99% of artists don't own their streaming rights. And so they Spotify doesn't pay them anything and nor should Spotify pay them anything because they don't own their own streaming rights. So all of this huge uptick in streaming that's going to happen on Spotify is going to benefit the streaming rights owners, which are the labels. And as Ken pointed out, the labels actually own a part of Spotify as part of the deal that Spotify got all of those streaming rights. The labels aren't stupid. They weren't going to give over the streaming rights to their catalogs without getting a piece of Spotify, which they did. So, but here's where the artists actually will benefit for the first time, even if they don't own their own streaming rights. Because the artist sees, take any artist you like, LL Cool J is going to see that, oh my God, there's a 20,000 LL Cool J fans listening to my streams simultaneously. I can go in that room and start talking to my fans and pick up a guitar and start playing for them live. And if they do, if they close off the room, if they allow the artist to do what Twitter already does today with their Twitter spaces, which are called paid Twitter spaces, ticketed rooms, they call it. Ticketed spaces is the official name of it, where the artist can charge $5 or whatever they set the price to participate in this paid room. If Spotify does that simple thing, of you know social commerce, where now all of the content creators on Spotify can now charge to go into their rooms, then the artist can charge whatever they want, 5 $10 to come into their room, right? So your favorite artist says, hey, I've got this live room going right now. I'm in the room myself and I'm playing my favorite songs and I'm telling you the story of how I wrote these songs and why I wrote these songs. And that's fine. I don't get paid for the stream, but you're paying $5 to come in here to listen to me be the DJ of my own songs and all the other songs that influenced me over the years. And I might pick up a guitar and start doing a virtual concert for you. And I'm getting paid $5 for every user who comes in this room. Now the artist is getting paid in a huge way on Spotify that they never imagined they could before. Oh, and it gets far better because now, oh, by the way, I've got merch. I can sell my shirts and coffee mugs and everything else in real time. Oh, by the way, buy my touring t shirt and all of my swag here in Spotify. And I'm monetizing that. Oh, and by the way, I'm doing a virtual concert tomorrow again with video from my rehearsal space. Tune in for that. Oh, and, and by and the don't way, don't forget,
8: and don't forget from, there's from probably the gonna be a premium tier too.
3: I'm sorry. Oh, and by the way, I've got vert new audio content that I'm going to release as NFTs. So if you buy, we're going to limit it to the first 10,000 buyers. It's an NFT that's limited to 10,000 copies only and you can buy it and resell it or whatever. And so Spotify becomes incredibly unimaginably interesting to music content creators in the very near future in some part due to the live audio thing that we're talking about. Now, uh, go ahead, Chris.
8: Uh, I mean, just the fan club dimension, too, right? You would have multiple tiers. It's like, well, you know, Platinum Taylor fans get to listen to my exclusive concert. You know, if you're if you're Bronze, I I really appreciate your help. You know, you get to listen to these regular songs, but the Platinum people get to hear me working on the next song. And that's 25 a month.
6: Yeah. But isn't that isn't that what? Uh, YouTube in a way already is doing to some extent or what would you expect actually YouTube to react upon that?
3: YouTube doesn't yet have the live uh it does have live streaming one to many it does have paid streams if I recall correctly there are you can charge to join a YouTube live stream I'm not sure if they have that or not
10: you can have private, um, like private memberships, that and only those people have access
3: to the streams. I don't think you can charge per stream. The the key difference is this dynamic of a room that we're in, where we're all sitting in this room together, doesn't exist in YouTube, notably. And there's something about the user interface where it feels like I'm in the room with Taylor Swift, even though I'm not on stage, but I have the potential to get on stage and talk with Taylor Swift. And if she's smart, she's going to invite up some of the people from the audience to engage with her on stage to keep the whole uh, app, create the impression that we are all in a room together. And I see you down there in the room and I love you. And oh, I see somebody from Cincinnati, whatever. That is uh, YouTube's interface doesn't enable that community feeling that you get even in this room or in this in this yeah Format or framework uh, that we have in in Clubhouse or in Green Room or what have you? Can I ask a question? Yeah.
10: What? What? Because obviously, I apologise if there's loads
3: of wind. Um,
10: obviously, the labels aren't going to like this because they're going to see this massive source of revenue and they're going to do everything that they can do to try and get a cut of it. Is there anything that they can do? And then I mean, they already like, have is there no restrictions if they are on Spotify yeah. and the the artist is playing the songs that they don't own the license to live and charging to
3: get into the room. Is that not... Check if, it the, out. The, so the labels already own a piece of Spotify. So as Spotify grows, they're going to be happy. Secondly, they own the streaming rights of 99% of the artists in Spotify. And the, 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 the top 99% of the artists in Spotify, they own the streaming rights too. So they're locked in on that. They're happy about that. The fact that the artist can create a room... And charge people to come in the room or whatever the artist and the artist is gonna play streams, their own streams and other artist streams. And the labels monetize off of that because they own the rights to those streams. So it's so far everything I've mentioned, the the labels are actually very cool with. Then we get into the merch and it turns out that the deal around nine around two thousand and three, the labels started getting very clever and doing what they called three sixty deals, which included they own part of your merch sales. So if you're selling your if you signed a deal after 2003, it's likely you did one of these 360 deals that gives artists gives the labels a percentage of your revenue of your not only your merch but of your concert performances. So if you're if you're doing merch in Spotify, they're going to get a cut of that and if you're doing a performance in Spotify, they'll get a cut of that too. So generally the labels are not going to have a problem with this
6: uh tyler i want to make two edifications sure. here. The, the last question was a good one that if given yeah, this it is a great question
3: yeah
6: that you just laid out when they when you have a live audio room okay because you have actually two rights holders for if it's music in a venue basically it's the it's the usually the, the music publishing company the label gets paid but also the composers get paid okay there's something called uh these uh, rights organizations like um BMI and ASCAP are the right. two biggest ones. So when you when you when you perform in, in a venue, the venue generally is paying BMI and ASCAP, and and that money gets split usually between the songwriter, um, which could also be the artist if it's a singer songwriter, and 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 the label or the publishing company. A live audio room will probably be argued that would be a, a, similar to a venue, and they're going to have to figure out how to pay the BMI and ASCAP fees. Um, so you can pay the songwriters, and that's a little bit different than um, than streaming. Right. And right now, also, I believe on I don't Spotify, think it, I
3: don't think it will be different because in that context, it will be streamed content.
6: Not if, not, not if somebody comes on with a guitar, like you're suggesting. Oh, right, like,
3: right. Ah, oh, you're right. If somebody does a performance, that's totally different. Yes, now.
6: that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Yes. Okay, and and also, I think the artists are getting paid in many cases the minimis um, by the labels, whatever the, depending on what their deal is, assuming they're not in deficit, um, which is a big, big assumption. They are getting paid some de minimis amount per stream to kind of make up for the fact that there's not really not CD sales as much and all that other stuff. So now all of a sudden, if you've got multiple streams in a room, mm-hmm. that's going to get a little bit interesting too, as to whether they're going to pay, they, they want to pay that times a hundred thousand. But right now, so a lot of the artists are getting the minimus amounts of, you know, str- you know, per stream, um, you know, if they're not as, as a substitute for selling a record. OK, basically, you know.
10: Yeah. So, so just to confirm, because I, I really want to understand this and this isn't my forte at all. If you have an artist who doesn't own the rights to their media. And they're not streaming the production track they're just in a room and they're chatting and then they whip out a guitar and start singing one of the tracks that they don't owe them the rights to on a guitar so there's not you know it's not the production
6: track what happens then okay so le- legally if it's considered a venue like just like if they if they just did it like in a bar okay then there has to be a fee paid to whether it were cons- called the the short term is called PROS, it's just called performance right organizations. At least in the United States and mostly in Canada, which I'm familiar with and overseas it could be different, but every every country has one, major country has one. They have these performance right organizations that handle paying um, the the rights holders for live performances of music in a venue. And Generally, at least in the States, there's, there's two companies that control about maybe 80% of that, one's called BMI, one's called ASCAP. There were actually two other ones, but I don't need to get into that here. Um, And they generally, the split doesn't have to be like this, generally the split on a song, like if you went went to a concert at Madison Square Garden, the split on that song uh, is going to be 50% to the songwriter and 50% to the generally the music label because that's the the company that typically owns the publishing rights and and and, and that's and that's how that works so if you had a live audio room i think it would be the same thing
10: just just quickly what happens if ed sheeran i I imagine he owns his own rights but let's say he doesn't um i'm not aware of his status likely doesn't Um, what's yeah potentially so what if he does a room um and he does an impromptu version of billy jean Live with the guitar.
3: That he just told you what happens. The, the person who wrote Billy Jean and then right, the, okay, yeah, that's why. Okay, I, song, so it doesn't make song, any difference. Songwriters are the actual uh, smart people in the entire game. They get paid. The the actu- the artist who performs the song generally doesn't make very much. The you know the, but the songwriters sure do. The business is set up quite well for the songwriters, not for the performers.
10: Got you. Thank you to the both of you.
3: Yeah, and then in many bands, by the way, this is why so many bands break up because in the Smashing Pumpkins, for example, you have one artist and one performer is the songwriter making all the money. And then the rest of the band's like, "Ah, fuck, we're not making anything. And one person is because one person's getting the credit for the songwriting, the others are not. One person's monetizing, the other three are not. Because they're just performers, not writers. And that's where you start getting the band. Once the band members figure this out, usually around album two, they're like, ah, shit, I I need to get songwriting credit or I'm going to be broke.
8: Well, with given this, do you think that really the impetus then is maybe some type of conversion from an ad to paid um, subscription so that some of these events would only be available to paying um, subscribers of Spotify and therefore... Whoever's converting more would, you know, gain share that way so that it basically circumvents the streaming rights. But it's like apportioning. We're getting we're getting
3: we need to do a a side room because we're we're getting off the news here. But it's a whole interesting topic. So the other big news is the European Central Bank says it will begin a 24 month investigation phase that could lead to the creation of the digital euro by 2025. That's obvious. That's going to happen. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if it happens even faster than that, even given how slow the EU is about things like this. But they were sure fast as fuck about their vaccine passport thing, which, by the way, is huge news in France at the moment. And a May sent in video of riots now starting to happen over the vaccine passport in France, as uh, they're now saying it must be used to enter restaurants Or even ride trains or planes. It didn't name buses, interestingly. Um, But to go into restaurants or shops, you're now going to need to prove you've been vaccinated. And that has led to two things. One, about a million people have signed up to become vaccinated. No surprise there. But also riots. Uh, And again, perhaps no surprise there. And... um, Interesting to see if that will spread across the EU, if, if the EU formalizes that. You may.
5: Tyler, yep. yeah, I, I have wind, so I'm going to stop riding my bike to my destination for a moment. Um, what's happening, happened yesterday or last night in the Dutch papers is that the prime minister is now apologizing. Ruth is apologizing for releasing the, the controls and the, the, all the protocols that he had in place too soon. And they're asking for his resignation. So it's a very interesting dynamic that's happening now because Netherlands is probably the one country that will just be like Homer Simpson and sink sink back into the hut, the hedge bush because they they have a lot of relations with a lot of countries both business personal strategically whatever so they tend to just like lean back but I believe our numbers have increased on vaccination and a lot of the, a lot of the kids now the teenage it's now 14 years old and up, and we're only doing the pfizer modena now, from what I see.
3: Yeah. So, but I, I, this Euro uh, digital Euro by 2025, it's going to happen. I don't see anything that would prevent that from happening. Um, in other big news happening, Square, which is Jack Dorsey's big fintech company, which uh, many merchants use, their uh, ch- checkout system, um, mom and pop shops use Square as a really cool uh, uh, point of sale system, POS system. Square has acquired Crew, which is the maker of a messaging service where employees at companies have this their own back channel. It's an app called Crew. And all of the employees uh, with not only the, the staff, but also the leadership of the company Use an app to communicate with each other. It's called crew, and so square has acquired crew uh, as it continues to evolve its massive um fintech kind of em- slash empire where they're they're getting into everything and crew's a fantastic app and used by some very big um partners actually um, so it's, it's' i think it's a smart acquisition for for square. Twitter says governments this is where this is a huge topic we're about to get into Actually, let me read a couple more before we get into it this is going to turn into a big one um tiktok has passed 3 billion installs globally and that's about as big as you can get now and similar to facebook itself uh it's the first non facebook app to reach the 3 billion mark and yeah I think Facebook is met like at 3.5 TikTok will hit 3.5 and then you just it's hard to grow past 3.5 because you're reaching the limit of people with internet access at that point point. and uh, amazing to see how fast TikTok got there and other interesting news okay let's go into it Twitter says this is being reported by Reuters that Twitter says governments around the world have made 361 demands to remove content from 199 verified accounts of journalists. And they're asked, so they're asking for official verified journalists to remove content. Journalists who have every, their their whole point is to release information that is not friendly to governments. And this is where it gets tricky because we talked about, if you were with us a half hour ago, 45 minutes ago, about how governments are now going to force Twitter and TikTok and everybody. And and by the way, TikTok's gone to the liberty of algorithm. They have their headline of TikTok today is they have an algorithm that auto magically is removing content before you even post it. But you're not a verified journalist. You're a Joe Schmo idiot, and you're saying stupid stuff that the state doesn't like. And the state is now creating blacklists for these different apps, forcing them to take down content that they don't like. And that's fine as long as you're a nobody, but what happens if you're a journalist? And what happens if you're a verified journalist? And the state says... I don't care if that's Bradstone from the New York Times. He said something we don't like in India. Take it fucking down now. What do you do now, Twitter? What do you do now, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, that the state is asking for breaking headlines of corruption exposed at the highest levels of your government by the New York fucking Times? And the state says, I don't care. They're especially going to ask for that to be taken down because it's the New York Times verified saying they've got verified sources that you are corrupt. What do you do now as a platform? Well, you don't have a choice. You take it down or you leave the country or the country bans you as Nigeria just did. So this gets really interesting because now I want you to understand the context of that headline when I read it again for the third time. Twitter says governments made 361 demands to remove, not requests, demands. Those are two very different things. Demands means or else. 361 demands to remove content from 199 verified journalists and news outlets, same thing, in the second half of 2020 which is up 26% from the first half of 2020. And we'll soon get the data on the first half of 2021, which I bet is up 300% over 2020. Because there's going to be an actual explosion of countries demanding the takedown of content, even from verified journalists, because that's the new state of, the battle between the platforms and the countries. The countries have the upper hand at the moment because the platforms don't have all the small business. The platforms today, Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and all these apps today in July of 2021 are communication platforms. They are not yet all of the mom and pop shops, although they very, very soon in the next six to 12 months, mom and pop shops, are going to be flocking and flooding into Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and Twitter to create their e-commerce stores. And what happens next year, 12 months from now, when you've got a million mom and pop stores that the the bulk of their business is on Instagram because they've become e-commerce businesses on Instagram. The shoe shops and flower shops and cake shops and all the, the fly fishing store and you name it are all on Instagram. And what happens then when the state says to Instagram, ah, you got to take down this content. And Instagram says, no. And the state says, oh, well, if you don't take it down, you need to leave India. And, And Instagram says, you realize we have a million of your small businesses doing the bulk of their business on Instagram. A million of your small businesses are doing their business all nearly exclusively on our platform. Are you sure you want to kick us out of India because you're going to kill a million small businesses? This is the battle of 2022 that nobody's talking about. That is going to happen. Gare and fucking teed. And it gets worse because the platforms are starting to provide the actual pipes of the actual connectivity to the countries like Starlink, like Amazon is doing its own satellite service of internet. So what happens when a lot of people start depending on the Facebook internet cable that comes from the U.S. all the way across the bottom of the you know, uh, Atlantic oh, in Pacific Oceans to service the and Google's cables also, Google and Facebook being the primary two, who are providing actual connectivity to actual countries, what happens when the country tells YouTube, oh, you take this down or else, and Google says, do you realize who owns the cable that's providing the internet to your country? So, it's going to be very interesting indeed. Today... It's,
1: it's making it's making me think, Tyler. Yeah. If we extend it out, right? Yeah. Let's make the assumption that happens. You extend it out. Now you've got... Um, the, the e-commerce as a critical uh, kind of uh you know power base for these tech companies because they're they're literally uh keeping alive small businesses in these countries right which is what the uh politicians uh usually have a spiel about to try and try and you know gain power so, but now i'm i'm thinking further out they'll they'll bring regulation but it'll bring regulation of them as retailers, which today, if you just look now, so if you wanted to predict the kind of regulation they'll try and bring, it would be the stuff that Walmart faces or today's traditional retailers face, right? Uh, but that's going to be hard as well, because today, the kind of uh, regulation that that you'd see for Walmart and, you know, Best Buy to some extent, but, you know, the big big retailers, say in the U.S., for one, just to pick one country, is that it'll be around labor rights and, and you know, taking care of employees, and and you know, making sure that there's fairness in in pricing, maybe, um, and and transparency. So maybe it'll be that kind of regulation as opposed to the kind of current regulation that they can impose on the, on the tech companies. That's just thinking ahead.
3: Yeah, and you get the there's another element which is the actual chips um, that build a lot of this stuff because the value of these chips is just starting to be. You know, similar to how um, masks became valuable all of a sudden, and who's making these masks became a, realized very quickly during COVID. And similarly, with these big chip shortage, people are realizing, ah, shit, we are super dependent on this other country for the production of masks and/or chips. And the U.S. woke up, as did a lot of places, and realized, ah, shit, we are incredibly dependent economically on these chips, <laughs> and more so than the masks economically. And uh, we need to start building these chips ourselves or we are screwed. And so that's why this headline today from Financial Express in India says, Building Digital Muscle, India Needs a World-Class Chip-Making Ecosystem. That's the headline today out of India. India just woke up and realized, ah, shit, we need to make chips or we're going to be screwed if those whatever country that does make those chips decide to not sell them to us anymore or make it illegal, or does some kind of blockade, or what have you. So, um, you're seeing... Yeah, Tyler, Tyler, I was going to add, did you you add data centers to
11: that? Because that's also an interesting angle. Like, you know, for instance, I remember, like, almost 10 years ago, Google, when they looked at East Africa, was saying, oh, we'd love to build a data center here. But, you know, one data center uses up as, like, a quarter of, you know, uses up, like, as much power as, like, a quarter of Rwanda's entire electric consumption, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so, uh, but, but also they're like, well, Rwanda, we like Rwanda because they're very open and they, they're very tech friendly. I don't know if we want to put it in Tanzania to cover the region or not, or Kenya is obviously very popular. So I'm wondering if this affects, you know, cause obviously data centers are typically done, not ex- always done by the one company, but they can be done uh, by one company. Like Google will only have their own or Apple or Facebook, but you do have like ISPs who then also have like data centers for others, right? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if, you know, and of course, Amazon coming in as well, you know, it opens up a whole other conversation about around what does each country do as around, around the data center strategy and who they let in to have their own and who allows them to open up and, you know, um, and be able to, you know, for example, you know, pull up data. Which, yeah, that, you know, that quickly turns to,
3: into the, because it's it, really it, messy. Yeah, it is super messy, but it quickly turns into the sovereign cloud issue, which the gov- that's the government perspective on this data center issue is the the way they perceive it is they need to be able to control the cloud that exists above, you know, to think of it metaphorically, we you already used the cloud metaphor, which is a data center is the g- geographic embodiment of the cloud, basically. And so they want to not only control that the data center is on their sovereign land, but they also want to control the data that goes in and out of that data center. Uh, in the metaphorical cloud, such similar to how they control what goes in and out of their borders uh, geophysically, any physical goods that go in and out of a of a nation, they have import taxes and um, and the like, and they're going to do the same with data as well in the near future. They're going to start treating data no differently than they treat physical goods going out of their physical borders. They're going to tr- treat treat data going in and out of their cloud in a very similar way. Um,
11: So So, so do you see this like if Apple decides to have uh, their own data center, say in Kenya, they would be taxed and treated differently for having their own proprietary data center versus say they decided they they, they would allow them to co-host. You're already starting to see.
3: It starts with the big, big, it it depends how much market opportunity exists in the country and the countries that are huge markets like India is where why so much interesting stuff is happening why we're seeing so many interesting headlines around India at the moment because they are you know they're even a bigger market than the US in in some aspects and so it's fascinating to watch they're forcing companies to set up data centers in India they're forcing other apps to get out they've just kicked out all the chinese apps wholesale and they're telling uh, the ones that they're friendly with, you need to have data centers here, you need to have offices here. They're just dictating all the terms of what India's doing is fascinating to watch because very soon after India does it, Indonesia's gonna do it. And then yes. Yeah, and then so, the, so then, then, then the EU will do it. It'll be interesting to see how the EU does it on an EU basis versus uh, nation basis within the EU and then the UK is now separate so eventually the UK will do it Japan will do it, it'll just go down the list based on market size and they will follow rather similar process that India is establishing at the moment you were saying Vinay? Yeah.
12: Yeah, so I was just going to say yesterday we were talking about the MasterCard issue, right? And uh, I actually did some digging and spoke to oh, somebody well, in But Vinay, you,
3: you're talking about something that you and me and 10 other people know. Let's explain it to the rest of the class. India just shut off MasterCard in India because they need to now so comply with India's new data collection scheme for how they're telling MasterCard they must do data in India. And MasterCard yeah. didn't comply. And they told MasterCard, good, you're done. Bye-bye. It was nice knowing you, MasterCard. You do it our way in our country or get the fuck out of our country. And that's how it works. And that's how it's going to work, not just in India, but everywhere else. Every country is going to have a different scheme for how they want all of these companies to operate. And it, it starts to become incredibly complex to comply the compliance internationally is it going to become too difficult for small companies to manage? And that's where there's going to be third-party solutions. In the short term, the big companies have the resources to deal with this headache of international compliance. And that's going to create a moat that's going to make it harder for small companies to uh, compete with the bigger companies that have the resources to comply with all of this international compliance. But we're now starting to see separate companies Uh, starting now that are going to be that you're going to hire almost like an accountant to help you deal with the international compliance.
12: Yeah. So the the point is, and and I want to link it back to the data center, what the rules are basically is that all of these international credit card companies must store their data only in India and no mirror sites should be allowed outside India. So American Express, Discover, and MasterCard are no longer allowed to issue any new cards until all Indian consumer credit card data stays only in India with no mirror sites allowed anywhere else.
3: You know what's funny a about Visa that?
9: already done you, that. That's,
12: you know what's funny about really that,
3: Vinay? So they, they happen to do that in a very clever way that hurts MasterCard or the other ones you named without hurting the actual merchants who accept MasterCard currently in India. So it's of no detriment or or loss to everyone who accepts MasterCard locally in India today, right? They feel no real difference. Yeah. But MasterCard, it sure hurts them and surely incentivizes them to change Uh, that make the necessary changes because they're no longer able to grow. But every mom, pop shop who only accepts MasterCard, no problem, you can still continue to accept MasterCard. So it's not hurting the small businesses, but it is hurting MasterCard. And that becomes very interesting when we analyze what's going to happen when Twitter has some journalist exposing the fraud of the government in whatever country. Let's use India as an example because this is bound to happen in the next 12 months. The New York Times or some big Washington Post, Wall Street Journal is going to have some very verified journalist with very verified sources exposing some very big, uh, embarrassing thing that the state is going to be very embarrassed about. And they're going to insist, as we've done countless times before, hey, Twitter, it's just another Wednesday. Take down this content. And Twitter's like, ah, shit, that's the New York Times. We can't take it down. And India's going to say, no, 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 you're going to take it down or you're going to have to leave. And then Twitter's at that 12 months from now going to remind India, well, it's a little different this time, India, because we have a hundred, uh, we, we have, you know, a million businesses that are built on Twitter in India. And India's going to, now we know what India going to say as a response because of what they're doing with MasterCard in this case. They're going to say, ah, that's fine. Those businesses can stay here, but uh, you're no longer allowed to add new businesses in India.
12: Yeah, and and by the way, this didn't just go to Mastercard and stuff. Even Indian banks, which had data, which were uh, hosting all their data in data centers around the world, were asked to move all their data to data centers that are physically in India. Right. And uh, AWS and all the others have started growing like crazy, setting up data centers. Fastest growing yeah. tech sector a- here.
11: It's such a slippery slope. That means all new fintechs potentially in, in, in India or, or operating in India or other emerging markets might have to think about thinking about a local um, uh, data center for them to, you know, they can't just automatically use AWS or whatever it is. They have to really go in there and, and work with the local data center, potentially. If they're going to attack that market in the fintech, especially healthcare and other areas, but fintech, it, I think it, it's going to be a huge, put, huge effect.
3: It could put the data centers in a superpower position, potentially, because there's only a few of them, AWS, Google Cloud, Microsoft Azure. And then if you're a fintech and you want to get into some market, They're going to tell you well, you got to pick between one of the three. We are here. We we are on the ground. We're compliant and we can help give you visibility. These cloud companies could position themselves where they are able to become an app store, where it becomes like the AWS app store. And here's all the apps that use AWS and they're compliant with India. And here's how you get to them. And you you might see that, and that would be really interesting because they've got the, they could build this huge distribution network, especially Google with Android devices, especially Amazon with Android devices, um, and Microsoft if they had devices. But it's it's really an interesting concept. Rent uh
13: Tyler, can I add a point? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I don't see anything surprising in this thing. A few years back, there was a Swedish company. I don't want to tell the name because you know the company. I know the company. uh, Who was working, operating from Sweden, which was holding huge amount of data about the indian market i yeah, i asked... very
3: well know the company yes
13: yeah exactly in fact so they, i'm, I'm they dear friends
3: asked... with the founders of that yes. company as you know yeah
13: <laughs> me me too so that's why i don't want to tell the name so they were asked to move to india and this was like years back uh, number 2 uh, this this also deals with the future laws related coming to crypto, because if they are using this MasterCard and stuff like that, and the data is holding in the US or anything, they can't create a good law about crypto shutting down any crypto exchanges and all that, because all these MasterCard and Visa are already giving away cards connected to the exchanges and coins. Number two. Number three, this uh, data centers in a specific region, that is quite common in, I mean, any banks. I know my wife is working with a bank over here and AWS was asked to put the data in Europe specifically and that delayed their project for almost six months. And they also told that they want to have a, uh, what should I say, Mm, support person in Europe. You don't, you can't have because AWS and others have a huge resources in India. And they told that you can't have a support person in India. You need to have an on-site person here because the data center is in Europe, which means that you need to have the person here. That's how they need to comply with the law. So I don't see that any, any big relate, anything relate, any surprising factor over this. This has been happening. I think they are just pinning down one-by-one one companies who are
11: not... No, doing this... Now this reminds me also I have this experience in Tanzania where like a lot of the banks are South African so Standard Bank Standard Bank, FNB um and when you log into the into the online banking in Tanzania for say FNB you know you see that it's a dot tz which is Tanzania's domain but then it redirects you to the za and you realize that, wait a minute they they just they just use this and and kind of just skinned it for Tanzania, but it hasn't quite reflected, but you can't call someone in Tanzania to, if you have an online banking issue, something that doesn't work, whatever support you, you know, you have to try and call someone in South Africa, but that doesn't make any sense. And I believe that the bank, central bank in Tanzania caught on to this and said, no, you have to, you can't just, they have ATMs and stuff and, and. Tellers in Tanzania, but no technical staff. So they have those all in South Africa. Check this out. So it's really annoying. It's like you're just kind of like stuck when you have an online banking issue in Tanzania. So so so
3: just found a fantastic article from CNN on this point. A new headline that uh, a company called Shine from China was banned in India, and now Amazon, uh, that Shine is making a comeback in India through Amazon after its app was banned. Amazon is helping Chinese upstart make a comeback in India after its app was banned. It's a fast fashion website that was, has emerged as a fierce competitor to Zara, is now making a return in India. So the, they had an app, and, and they were primarily a fashion app. It was one of the Chinese apps that was banned in India. And now they're selling all of their goods. And they basically converted their app business into an Amazon store. And Amazon is allowed in India. So they're, they're now selling all of their stuff through Amazon in India. To my point, these huge clouds and huge platforms, Amazon now could do that for lots of other apps that got in games. You could have a gaming app that got killed in India, because they didn't comply with India, and then that game comes in through Netflix, because Netflix has now said they're going to go into games, and Netflix is not banned in India. You see what I'm saying? Is this could make entrench these big platforms and clouds in a really big way that they start becoming the distribution networks of these products and services?
13: Uh, I can tell you a typical example. I mean, when the COVID started, one of the governments, uh, state governments in India got a company uh, from U.S. which had an Indian founder uh, so they to track all the COVID-related activities. But when, they, when other people related to privacy dig deep into the document agreement which they signed, they told that we are holding all the data in U.S. So if you have any data privacy issues, you need to file the case in a New York court, which is impossible. So these are all related. And mm-hmm. they had to finally kick out this company. Uh, from these uh, operations.
3: So SoftBank just invested n- nearly $2 billion. Jesus Christ, that's a big investment. I- into Korea's Yen- Yenolja ahead of its IPO. Uh, it's investing, to, yeah, $1.7 in Yenolja, giving South Korea's largest travel app extra capital. Apparently they're a travel app and the world's largest property management app. And SoftBank is usually ahead of the curve, and property management is a huge, going to become one of the next big, huge spaces in tech. That prop, what they call prop tech, is not a huge buzzword yet, but it will be. That is, in addition to ed tech and med tech, one of the other areas that is going to become wildly disrupted in the next, uh, after they, it's not as interesting to the data isn't as juicy as the med tech data is. So med tech is certainly the focus in the short term for the big tech companies because of all the sensors and how they can use that data to enrich their existing ad networks and whatnot. So it's going to be med tech first. After med tech, the secondary focus is ed tech. Also, lots of interesting data, not quite as juicy as the med tech data, and then prop tech. Just in terms of its sheer size, uh, is Truly a juicy, juicy, low-hanging opportunity for big tech to get its teeth into once it's chewed through med tech and ed tech. And so SoftBank doing this, you know, 1.7 billion into this um, world's largest property management app. Mark my words, PropTech is going to be huge. It's just not, no one's talking about uh, it yet other than people in PropTech. Just, Go ahead, for us.
2: Just a thing that I've been sitting here for a very long time trying to figure this thing out. So there's the Airbnb of Tra- travel. So, for example, hotels and mm-hmm. and, and you know all, all tiers of hotels. Property management is one thing. Then having the ability to also manage the central air conditioning, um, cleaning of those hotels, yeah. uh, all sorts of other things. Yeah. Now I'm beginning to think about like you know the future of having, for example, Alexa or Siri in the ho- in in the hotels at the same time. So a Venn diagram of Prop tech and every other form of tech that you can have fintech applied together and I think that's probably what SoftBank is looking at in terms of the the crossing over of every form of different tech that we talk about in this room and Mm -hmm. that's why the bet is so huge.
3: Yeah. Um, So Qatar Wealth Fund builds regional hub in Singapore to diversify. You know anything about that for us?
2: Yeah, so... um, I guess the, the regional hub is kind of set up like an advisory platform. So it's kind of um, bringing together Singapore, Europe, and the United States, I think, is what they're trying to do. Um, the have of Singapore is their headquarters, and the investment strategy is an allocation towards combinations of you know, different asset classes, different um, companies, etc., and different tiers of capital into all three regions, of, hmm. and Singapore is in is particular focus of it.
3: Interesting. So the, you sent in, I just tweeted that tweet out that you sent in. I'm tweeting out another one about a Delta pilot is now suing Delta for $1 billion, claiming that Delta stole his app. He made an app called Crew, the Crew app. And Captain Craig Alexander says he developed an app for flight crews. He claims Delta stole and used his technology in its own tool. And it was used... Delta Airlines was sued for more than a billion by one of its own pilots who claims he developed a text messaging app for flight crews that the airline stole and used as the basis for its own app. Captain Craig Alexander sued Alexander based Delta for trade secrets theft in Georgia State Court. He claims he spent $100,000 of his own money to develop the Crew Live app, which he pitched to the airline as a way to address crew communication snafus after disrupted flights. Delta turned him down but went on to launch its own identical tool. Delta stole like a thief in the night, <laughs> and as he says in court, and defrauded its own loyal employee, um, a lawyer. For um, the owner uh, said Wednesday in an interview, he said that the owner of the app, an 11-year veteran with the airline, was flying a Delta 757 as we speak. And a Delta spokesperson said, while we take allegations of the complaint seriously, they are not an accurate or fair description of Delta's development of its internal crew messaging platform. A five-hour power outage that resulted in hundreds of flight cancellations in August cost Delta more than $150 million dollars. The pilot said in the suit, he emailed Chief Executive Officer Ed Bastian at the time saying he had a solution. Bastian allegedly responded promptly and referred Alexander to the company's new Chief Information Officer. Bastian, the CEO, and the CIO, uh, Rahul Samant, are both named in the suit, along with four other Delta executives. Alexander claims that he had several positive meetings with the airline in 2015 and 2016, in which the executives made clear they were interested in acquiring his app but Delta eventually cut off discussions and then launched its own app in 2018 called Flight Family Communications. FFC is a carbon copy knockoff of the role-based text messaging component of Craig's proprietary crew live communications platform. He said in the suit, the pilot noted in his suit that Bastion and Samant have both bragged to investors that the app has smoothed operations. In describing the damages he's seeking, Alexander said the value of the technology based on... Solely upon operation cost savings to Delta, conservatively exceeds $1 billion. Alexander is also seeking punitive damages against Delta. To add insult and to theft and injury, the Captain Craig Alexander must use his stolen crew live text messaging platform every day while he works for Delta, the suit claims. Every time he looks at the FFC app, he is painfully reminded that Delta stole his proprietary trade secrets, Used them to Delta's enormous financial benefit, and this happens quite a lot, unfortunately. Um, but in this case, he's sure as hell not going to get a billion dollars because he only spent a hundred thousand dollars on the app, and he, his losses are only a hundred thousand dollars, even though he, if he was trying to sell it to Delta, no doubt Delta did the calculation of how much it would cost them to make the app. And if he tried to sell the app for more than Three hundred thousand. They're clearly going to say no. We can make it ourselves for a hundred. Why would we pay you more than three hundred? And he's going to argue, oh, because you're going to save uh, you. It costs you a hundred and fifty million in headache when things go bad. And they're going to say, yeah, but it only costs us a hundred to make it. So why again should we pay you more than three hundred to buy yours? And his excuse that well, the problem it solves is so big, isn't going to hold up. Unfortunately, as much as he wishes it would. So it seems like he tried to oversell it. When tech is becoming easier and easier and easier to copy, he needs to take that into account. The question of the trade secrets will come down to, did he sign any paperwork with the company around, not, you know, um, maintaining his rights to all of his innovations and prohibiting, it's called a non-disclosure agreement, which would prevent Delta from using any of his, trade secrets. And so if Delta signed any of those things, which I can guarantee you, they did not. They would not sign anything prohibiting them from copying what he's made. They're not stupid. They did not sign that stuff, so he's going to be fucked. I can tell you how this court case is going to end right now. He's not going to get anything because they didn't Scrut. sign anything. Well,
6: Tyler, if he Scrut. has a patent and they violated the patent... It, he
3: would have mentioned that in his suit.
6: Oh, okay, because I, was, I didn't, didn't mention that in the article, either. Right. I was... He keeps saying it's proprietary. He didn't didn't mention the word patent. Yeah, but he's, he
3: he's, he he keeps using the word trade secret. Can yeah, you, and there's got to be something
10: know. that's patentable. Like there has to be something novel in there that he can tie to a patent. And, and you know, like it's a messaging app. So that I, I'm. I would be interested in seeing what is novel about that that could n- there,
3: claim he can you're exactly it, right there's exactly. not not only is there nothing novel because the app that square just announced they bought today which is also named crew is essentially the exact same thing for retail it's a yeah, communication okay. system for retail team members staff employees So the fact that it has the same name and does the same thing is very highly unlikely that he did anything patently novel in this communication app. I mean, it would be absurd, honestly, to suggest that he did anything patently novel in this communications app. He can do trade secrets all day long. That's fine. If he voluntarily exposed those trade secrets without... Any kind of signed agreement from Delta s- signing an agreement saying they wouldn't steal his trade secrets, then of course he can sue them. If they didn't sign anything agreeing that they wouldn't take advantage of whatever he's revealed in those meetings, then he's shit out of luck, which I can assure you he is.
2: Just for bad press's sake, they'll probably pay him something and, and get it done with. He's not going to get much out of it. But it's just, you know, it's just, yeah. I mean, this is the difference between an, an invention.
3: Well, he should have made sure they signed something before he showed it to them, or not try to sell it for more than it was worth. Because then they just do the calculation and said, "No, fuck it. We can make it for a hundred thousand. We're not going to. We're not going to pay you. We're going to offer you two hundred to avoid this press. This headline that just came out is going to cost Delta, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollars in lost business." So. They, they took that into account when they did the calculation of how much they're going to pay him. They're going to pay him more than the 100000 it cost them to make it. We're going to triple it. We're going to pay you 300000 it seemed like he was looking for some person. He should have done a, some kind of rev share deal model with them that would have, um, based on prevented losses in the future, if, although that would be very hard to do. But um, anyway, it's unfortunate. But the, it's something for entrepreneurs to keep in mind. That's why we mention it. Thanks to Froz for sending that in. And Froz sent in <coughs> another one that says the next pandemic can be averted with AI and apps and big data. And of course, it can by governments who run effectively like Singapore. And um, but it likely won't be like in places like America where Apple and Google's CEOs got together to build the technology to enable this in America and it got. Totally trashed, totally ignored and abandoned. And that uh, meeting between a very unprecedented, uh, remarkable meeting between the CEOs of Apple and Google to unite to enable a vaccine kind of passport system or tracking system. Rather, it was a covid uh, um, exposure tracking system that could utilize both Android and iOS and it went nowhere because America's completely the like the just incapable of leveraging tech for these kinds of things. So as as much as I'd love to believe the headline, it's true in countries that can take advantage of it, like Israel, like Singapore, uh, that the next pandemic can be averted with AIs and apps and big data. Um, and in countries that allow Peloton to use it, which the NHS did to some good effect, but Although they got about a bunch of negative blowback. Anyway, um, COVID has accelerated research efforts on stopping infectious diseases from jumping to humans and other vaccines to combat them. And there will be all kinds of new tech and mRNAs play a huge role in building distribution network of vaccine factories around the world to make it easier because we're now just getting vaccines in Thailand three months after, you know, the U.S. and everywhere else that, um, you know the the. And then, you know, a lot of Africa is still not getting vaccines. There's a, it's just taking way too long to distribute this stuff. And you need to g- manufacture the stuff in hubs all around the world to make it easier to get the vaccines out more quickly. Because if there's a if smallpox comes out and we don't even to say if when somebody generates a smallpox like virus that will kill 30, 40, maybe even 50 percent of people. You're going to need to get the vaccines out lickety-split. mRNA, thank God, will be able to make the vaccine in 24 hours. The question is, how quickly can you manufacture and distribute the stuff? And that's why you need manufacturing facilities around the planet that can distribute the stuff immediately when you've got a virus that's killing 40% of people who become infected with it. That's the new game. And um, that will happen, give it five years. Why Wall Street is afraid of the digital dollar? The idea of the government-backed virtual currency has support in policy circles, but Wall Street sees a threat in consumer finance dominion. Perhaps because it gives the governments the ability to control the supply in real time, and effectively change the exchange rates in real time. And that causes some concerns to the markets because today the markets effectively control the value of the currencies based on supply and demand. And now it puts that control directly in the hands of the governments and the central banks uh, very namely. So that's that's why I'm guessing why I haven't read the article, but it says... Imagine logging onto your account with the U.S. Federal Reserve, right? That's the one who's now going to have all the power. That With your laptop or phone, you could zap cash anywhere instantly. There'd be no middlemen, no fees, no waiting for deposits or payments to clear. That vision sums up the appeal of the digital dollar, the dream of futurists, and the bane of bankers. It's not the Bitcoin bros or the other cryptocurrency fans pushing the disruptive idea, but America's financial and political elite. Fed Chair Jerome Powell promises fresh research and a set of policies a set of policy questions for Congress to ponder this summer. The former chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission is rallying support through a nonprofit called the Digital Dollar Project, a partnership with consulting giant Accenture. To penetrate American values such as free enterprise and the rule of law, we should modernize the dollar, he recently told the U.S. Senate Banking Commission. For now, the U.S. dollar remains the premier global reserve currency and preferred global tender for international trade and financial transactions. But a new flavor of cryptocurrency could pose a threat to that dominance, which is part of the reason why the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston has begun working with MIT on developing prototypes of the digital dollar platform. Other governments, notably China's, are ahead in digitizing their currencies. In these nations, regulators worry that the possibility for fraud are multiplying as more individuals embrace cryptocurrency And Steve Mnuchin, former President Donald Trump's Treasury Secretary, said he saw no immediate need for the digital dollar. His successor, Janet Yellen, has expressed interest in studying it, support for a virtual greenback cuts across party lines in Congress, which will have a say on whether it becomes a reality, and there will be so much infighting that it will never happen. We can safely say that now in the U.S., unless it gives some disproportionate advantage to China, and then we will collectively agree we need to stay up ahead of China and settle our uh, differences between Republicans and Democrats and move forward. Unless the banks say no, and then it will slow it down again. (laughs) And the banks will say no, because the banks have the power uh, now, and they don't want to lose it. And it will be a power battle between the banks and the government. And the question is, who will win there? It's fun, America. It's a really fun game. Anyway, Tyler, I'm yes. going to
1: interrupt you one second. Um, in the middle of a conversation, Faraz just got uh, he just got uh, kicked out of the room. So, I, uh, just a personal request. It's not from anyone else. Uh, please, please unblock. It's not helpful. Thanks. How do you get kicked you out of the to. room? He is clearly blocked by somebody on the stage right now.
3: Ah, so he left and can't. He's not able to rejoin.
1: No, he just you get
3: kicked out if somebody
1: blocks you. I think anyway, he can't get in it's 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 a blocking thing ah so somebody on stage right now is blocked uh, for us
3: i don't think that's true anyway. though huh, that, that would no? be a weird okay
10: two people are on stage
3: well he but, could find out by uh, trying to dm the people he thinks that it might be
1: <laughs> yeah that's that's what he's doing so
3: yeah it's not going to be uh hidden for long right so um yeah if you're blocking it might be smart to unblock him before he figures out who you are so um bci those three letters are going to become huge. It means brain-computer interface. Currently, Neuralink is a, is a pioneer in that space. Stanford, notably, as an institution, is one of the big um, leaders in that space. And our friend um, Sid from Apple it works professionally in that space. And Sid's not here at the moment, but the headline is about a BCI brain computer interface milestone. We read one yesterday actually about how now people are able to control robotic arms um, with their brain. They've now figured out the feeling part of the brain that can help give two way feedback, not one way control. There's two ways. There's two parts to the brain, the signal out of your brain to tell a robotic arm, to close or move, and then the response back where the fingertip sensors on the fingertips of the robotic arm send messages back to the brain, that's a two-way communication. That's what was revealed yesterday was people were controlling this robotic arm and were able to feel what the arm was feeling. And that begins something truly remarkable, because if we can correctly identify the parts of the brain that are responsible for the sensation of touching then VR becomes not just a visual and audio experience. It also becomes a physical experience. And then it becomes indistinguishable from teleportation or complete, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, um, What did they have in Star Trek where you create a holodeck-like experience? Because then you're in that environment and are able to feel what's happening in that environment. That's just mind-blowing because the the parts of your brain responsible for touch will be activated in that environment. And then you're hugging grandma who passed away, uh, you know, years previously. And, you know, due to other technologies that are also advancing headlines we read in recent weeks or days even about voice printing and, and face printing, they'll be able to put grandma's face and voice onto existing actors. And it's... It's going to be truly mind-blowing. So anyway.
10: Also in a more dystopian sort of comment, the disassociation from reality uh, and, and, and your own body and whatnot. The th- thing to quickly note on this just is that uh, a, a lot of these that I've seen and looked into, and I don't work in this industry, but a lot of them, uh, they reconnect to the nerves and whatnot. And the feelings that you get are the feedbacks from the senses <laughs> But it's more like a, it's, it's more like a, a, like a pressure. It's been described as like a pressure. So it's, it's the sensation of something happening in the senses and giving feedback, but not in the same way that, say if a person lost a limb, or they, they still had two arms, that they would understand what the sense of touch feels like. So I think there's still a long way to go for that. Um, but that sensation of pressure, and then how much pressure, electrical pressure is being felt, um, it's quite often described as like a vibration in, in the nerve. Um, can indicate like the how much pressure that the device is squeezing on something. So whether an object is, is sort of, you know, hard or, or squishy or large or small and that kind of thing. But it, it's really cool. It's very, very cool.
3: Yeah. And the headline today from Nicholas, who's, uh, uh, you know, a VR guru himself in Stockholm, says, new research from UC San Francisco with support from Facebook perhaps not a surprise. Well, although that's kind of a new revelation, actually, that Facebook is now getting into the brain-computer interface game. And now you know why they're getting into the brain-computer interface game, because of their tremendous focus on VR. Because VR will be fundamentally um, become a whole new uh, thing with brain computer interface uh, due to the touch sensation alone uh, for other reasons as well. The first time someone with a severe speech law, oh, this is the headline in this case from Facebook's own website, by the way, tech.fb.com. So it's tech.facebook.com says there's a BCI milestone, new research from University of California, San Francisco with support from Facebook shows the first time someone with severe speech loss has been able to type out what they wanted to say almost instantly, simply by attempting speech. So they're now controlling the computer speech output by controlling their own attempted speech output, and they're able to translate the attempted speech output accurately. That's amazing. So people who are unable to speak now can speak with computer assistance. Tyler, can I say something? Yes. Just quickly? So I never got a chance
2: to DM whoever it was that blocked me. Next time someone wants to block me, guys, just, just come out and have a chat with me in a separate room. Yeah? How how did you so get back in? Out. I don't it's know. I just so got back in, but whoever the little mouse is, because was, of the statement. We we always made have somebody made oh, a yeah, somebody unblocked you. Okay.
1: Yeah. Somebody made Fair a wise enough. choice. Yeah. All right. You still there, little mousey? All right.
3: <laughs> okay. So, Tyler. Yes.
7: i um I don't think it just sort of dawned on me. I'm not sure if anybody's aware, but Facebook built almost, I would say, a completely separate campus for their entire Oculus team, which I can only assume also includes anybody working on all their VR products, which is actually like 15 miles north of where Facebook sits in Menlo Park. Um, The entire Oculus team, well, obviously this happened before because it's just being finished now, in Burlingame. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all now that I'm listening to you say this, I'm like, kind of like, oh, that's really interesting because it goes far beyond what we originally thought. Right. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Um, super, super, super interesting. Yep. And Burlingame's is not that far from UCSF. Uh, <laughs> you're getting quite close to the UCSF campus there by the ballpark. Um, anyway, um, MasterCard and Verizon announced their 5G partnership. We covered that. What uh, other other headlines? That, oh, N26, the neo bank, now getting into the buy now pay later game. There it is. All the neo banks themselves now getting into it, like uh, Monzo, N26, uh, Revolut, and I I don't know if the others have done it, but N26 is one of those new neo banks uh, that is now doing that. India, a uh, company called In Shorts, raises sixty million. Uh, to help drive uh, e-commerce and s- uh, for um, social commerce. So more social commerce booming. We AT&T, Samsung, Qualcomm help launch s- 6G Research Center at University of Texas. So we're now getting ready for 6G. And if you really want to know what's going on with 6G, head over to Stockholm and go visit Ericsson. And Re- Revolut is in the news. They raise eight hundred million dollars from SoftBank and Tiger, Tiger Global. Both. Well, that, that, we we often joke. Usually, when there's these big headlines of huge fundraisings of you know near a billion dollars, usually Tiger Global's involved or SoftBank. This might be the first time I've noticed that both they actually got both, valuing um, Revolut at thirty three billion dollars, almost six times more from than just a year ago. And these neobanks are indeed booming and the traditional banks better wake the fuck up uh, because these neobanks continue to add more features and functions of products and services by the day. As we just read in the last headline, they're adding buy now, pay later and all these things that customers really want. And they're partnering with social commerce apps directly and traditional banks really need to wake up because fintech is... He- moving head forward very quickly and um it's 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 going to get real interesting for traditional banks so facebook we covered that netflix starting video games we covered that let's yes
5: I was just going to add that um, the Neo Bank, um, I don't know if I mentioned it, but uh, a Nigerian fintech startup, Fair Money, they just raised, I think um, early uh, July, $42 million Series B fund. Um, that's exactly what they are doing. They in fact secured even a microfinancing license so that uh, because they think the Nigerian government are trying to have a new framework for you know who who is uh, extending um, pay, pay.
3: Sorry, messy. sounds like you cut out there. I've got other headlines here, real quick. Cheryl sent in one that AI. Uh, Singapore, Singapore launches competition to design solutions for detecting fake news. Trusted Media Challenge, aimed at attracting AI community to design solutions that will help detect fake media, which just launched by AI Singapore, a national research foundation. And then Karam sent in one that Sam's Club, which is a huge um, retailer, unveils a new pilot where shoppers at Sam's Club can scan items and have those items shipped home. And that's fantastic. That's truly awesome. Because in Sam's Club, usually you have to buy large quantities of products and you need to bring a truck to Sam's Club often to to shop effectively there because they make you buy large volumes of things. You can't buy one box of cereal. You got to buy 20 boxes of cereal. And so the idea to have everything shipped home just by scanning the barcode is quite interesting, but no doubt they'll make it uh, even easier and do what Target's doing, which is you can Target now allows you to shop on the app and then notify them that you're outside and they'll bring it to your car. And in the very near future, they will both realize the real solution is combining those two things: you buy it from the app and then it gets delivered to your house. Uh, so they're they're taking baby steps, but in the very near future. They will all figure out that it's just much easier to just do traditional e commerce and just click the stuff, have it delivered. And it will all happen sooner or later. And Renjant sent in one, oh, yeah, about the N26. We covered that. Sarah sent in one about the Indian e commerce. We covered that. And Faraz sent in one that a virus trio could push UK hospitals to the brinks. Scientists are now warning that a mix of COVID-19, influenza, and respiratory virus common among children could push the UK's National Health Service to the breaking point this winter. And that's quite concerning. And this brain implant that lets a man speak uh, now is getting more traction, and there's now photos. So I'm tweeting that out as well. And let's save the rest of these 5,000 tweets that everyone sent in for when we meet again in five hours and 15 minutes so everyone can go take a bio break eat some food uh, do some tweets hug your loved ones and have a fantastic day and we will meet again in five hours and 15 minutes
12: all right everybody
3: thank you thank you bye-bye